You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hello and welcome to Season 10, Episode 15 of the Scottish Football Forums podcast. I'm good, John, and I have another special guest. Um, So we've got model, pop star, um, producer, um, presenter, and most importantly, Aberdeen fan, uh, Ali Begg. How are you, Ali? I'm fine, John, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. I think you're the first pop star that we've had on. We had an actor recently, <laughs> Paul McCready, and um, a movie star, John Martin, a couple of weeks ago. So um, you're completing the set nicely. So how are, th- <laughs> how are things over at your end? Because I understand um, at a difficult time, you've decided to relocate. Yeah, we, we, uh, we've been in Salzburg now for just over a month. We moved from Qatar after I sadly lost my job over there due to the COVID situation. So my wife is Austrian, she's from Salzburg, and for a number of years we've had a family home just over the border into Germany, it's only 20 minutes from Salzburg airport. We have it as a small holiday business, so we're at the moment in a small apartment in Salzburg city centre, but we're moving in two weeks to our own home um, once the, the holiday season is over. So we're really looking forward to getting into our own house and our own surroundings. So we're delighted to be here. It's, uh, it's, I've always wanted to come and live here. I didn't ex- quite expect it to be as soon as this, but sometimes in life you need something to happen to make something happen, if that makes sense. So we're actually really pleased to be here. My wife is with me at the moment as well, which is great. She's going to go back to Doha in a couple of weeks and finish off her project out there. And then we're hoping that she can join us full time at the beginning of the year. So at the moment, I'm just uh, taking my time, looking at all my options and hoping to get back to full time work after I set up my own company in the next few weeks. So, yeah, delighted to be here, John. Really am. Excellent. Um, so what, what is the company that you're setting up? So what I've decided to do is basically go freelance and act as a consultant and that can, that can bring a number of different aspects to what I do. So media training, blogging, advising, talent advising, looking after talent, um, sponsorship advising, commercial advising. So there's a, a whole range of ideas that I have for the company. And I think I would like to to use the experience that I've garnered over the the last 20 years or 25 years now in the industry and uh, just see where it takes me. As I said earlier, I'm in no rush. I want to set it up properly. There's a few complications with me trying to set it up out here because I'm a British national living in Germany, wanting to work in Austria. So that comes with its complications. So it's a little bit of a slow process at the moment. But once we get set up and once we get going, I'm hoping everything will be fine. Yeah, I'm sure it will. I mean, you mentioned, obviously, that you sadly lost your job at BN. You know, it's a job that you've been in for a while. looked as though you were loving what you were doing. Um, was it simply down to COVID and cutbacks that you ended up losing that position? Yeah, I think um, it could have been handled better. But... Listen, I, you know, I don't hold any grudges. I don't have a, a chip on my shoulder about it. 
to be honest, I kind of saw it coming because when we lost all the live sport, there was obviously going to be a knock-on to that situation. And at the end of the day, being sports is a business as well as a broadcaster. And they have to function as a business. And if they don't function as a business, then obviously they won't be around. So I completely understand. And to be honest with you, I had no issues with it. At the time, I was a little bit disappointed because I'd gone in and um, produced programs when the whole COVID situation was surrounding us. So I was a little bit a little bit annoyed when I initially got the phone call. But after that, you know, when I slept on it, John, and I woke up the next morning, I actually felt quite liberated by it all. And at the end of the day, as hard as it was at the time, 48 hours later, I was absolutely thrilled to get away from the place and be able now to, to move to Salzburg and set up and start again. So, no, it was no issue for me whatsoever. Uh, good stuff. I'm glad you've seen the, the positive out of a... Um... A difficult situation. Um, you've obviously mentioned um, you know, the COVID situation. You're living in Austria now. Um, just, I mean, things are obviously difficult here in Scotland. Um, you've, you're aware that the the crowds have been um, are not allowed back into football, despite a couple of recent test events, which, to my knowledge, came back with uh, no linked cases. Um, but they've got to do what they've got to do. There's a big fear that a lot of clubs um, in the lower leagues, which is due to start next week, might go out of business in Austria. Is it still no fans there, or are they doing the pilots? No, there's no fans allowed in the stadiums at the moment. The, what they do have in certain areas is restrictions. So you're only allowed to go in, um, there are only so many numbers allowed in, like say, for example, 350 up to 500. Um, in the top leagues, you're not allowed to go in. So um, at the moment, everything here is under complete lockdown, being very strict with what they do. But I have to say, you know, being here in the month that I've been here, you can see how vigilant people are. Yes, everyone's still going about their day-to-day business, but you have to wear a mask if you go into any sort of public place. Um, if we go to the school to pick up the kids, we have to wear the masks. You have to obviously be aware of the social distancing as well. Yeah. So very much like um, like in the UK, the, there's a, a protocol in place where it has to be two metres. It's as simple as that. And people are being quite strict about that. So they seem to have it under control here in Austria. But what I'm, what I'm liking is the, the fact that people are being vigilant and you don't hear of any reckless parties that are going on, reckless gatherings, which obviously we get reports from the UK about. So, listen, John, everyone's just trying to get on the best way that they can. You know, I, I fear... For football, you know, especially at lower league level, how they're going to cope financially if we don't start getting people back into to stadiums. But at the moment, with the cases rising alarmingly, you know, the government have got to make a decision. And at the moment, as hard as it is, they're making the right decision because at the end of the day, it's people's health that's the most important thing here. Yeah, definitely. Um, and as you mentioned, there's um, worrying things in the UK. Um, I read that 300 house parties were broken into by the police at the weekend. This five days after um, they said that absolutely nobody was to visit anyone, which is a frustration. Um, you know, when people are trying, you know, are keeping their distance from their families because this that's the rule. And then there's others that just don't seem to be get either. Either they're not getting what's happening, or they just don't care. That, that's the that's the frustrating thing. At the end of the day, look, it's down to the individual person what choice they make. But I think 
you have to listen to what the, the experts are saying. And if there's rules in place, you've got to abide by them as hard as it is. And I, I understand the frustrations. Of course I do. My own family back in the UK are struggling with it all, but they have to abide by the rules. And until we get over this pandemic, we just have to all stick together and do as we're told. Um, obviously, you know, this freedom of speech and you can't imprison people. I, I understand that, you know, you can't pr- imprison people in their own homes. But unless we stick together and abide by the rules and are vigilant, it's going to be a long time. And that's the worrying thing for me is how long will this take? Yeah, that's the worrying thing for me because, I mean, we're over six, nearly seven months now um, since it properly hit in the UK and, uh, you know, it seems as though it looks as though we're making a step forward and then it's like three steps back, but that's just a personal frustration. But at the end of the day, I'll do what I've been doing for the last seven months. Um, I just hope that, I hope we get to a position where, because I don't think this virus is ever going to go away, so it needs to be a time where we have to accept that that it's there have some in place, um, whether it's a vaccine or other remedies, but they can't expect this to go on forever, but I appreciate it's got to be a short-term solution. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I, I just uh, it's such a worrying time for everybody, and with the pandemic in its current state, and it's, it's you know, the cases are going up, then they're going down, then we appear to have it under control, then it, it all of a sudden it turns and we're getting a lot more cases because obviously I'm keeping an eye on Scotland more than anything else. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just a worrying trend at the moment. So we've just got to stick together and just do the very best that we can in what is a pretty awful situation at the moment. Yeah, definitely. But we'll, we'll go back to, um, you know, better times. So um, mm. Aberdeen Football Club, um, what was your first memories um, What what um, of Aberdeen? When did you first start so, knowing that you're an Aberdeen fan? So we moved to Aberdeen from Holland in the summer of 1979. And my first real memories are sitting at the breakfast table before going to school in the morning and my dad waxing lyrical about the local football team that had just won the league title. So we're now sort of talking May 1980, so sort of fast forward a few months. And... Just through my dad talking about players like Willie Miller, Gordon Strachan, Steve Archibald, um, Mark McGee, these type of guys, then the the names started to become more and more familiar. And then dad would sit and watch the highlights on a Saturday night um, or a Sunday afternoon, depending what day they were on and what program they were on. And then you start to recognize these guys by their by their faces, and I became more and more intrigued. And I started playing football myself almost immediately when I first went to primary school in the village, and just started falling in love with the game quite quickly. And then just it just became a natural progression. You know, my dad was a big football fan anyway, and I used to bang on at him. I can still clearly remember saying to him, sat over the kitchen table one morning, "Can can we go to the football? Can you take me to Petardia?" and he, always, he was always prepared for these type of questions and he, he would always say, we'll see, which is not quite a yes, but also, mm-hmm. more importantly, not quite a no. And I've carried that on into to the way I parent my own kids as well. When they say to me, you know, Daddy, can we get a new toy today? I'm like, oh, we'll see. So um, that, that, those are my earliest memories of um, really starting to understand football, starting to understand 
Aberdeen. And then my dad relented and took me to my first game, which was the end of the 1980-81 season, which sadly was a defeat against Kilmarnock at Pataudry. And it also happened to be Joe Harper's last game for Aberdeen. So I wasn't quite expecting a defeat for my first game. Um, but it, it's a day I've never forgotten. I can still picture it in my own mind, you know, given how long it was. Um, I can still clearly remember walking up... Um, walking over the, the, the beach, over the links, walking up the street. My dad lifted me over the turnstiles, that rusty smell of the, the main stand, um, and then walking up the steps and just seeing the pitch for the first time, you know, the old beach end mm-hmm. and the south stand, which was still relatively new at the time. Yeah. Um, seeing the seagulls, smelling the, the pies. <laughs> It's, it just, it, I, I was hooked immediately. I really was. And um, I can still, I can still recall the guys behind me, the old guys behind me swearing because the, the team went playing well and kind of being quite fascinated by the use of language and the, the abuse that some of the boys were getting. Um, so I really became hooked, John, from, from there. And it's just, as you well know, it's just become a passion ever since. Yeah, definitely. My first game was a defeat as well, by the way. A 1 0 defeat by St. Mern in 1998 at Love Street. Um, okay. So I got off to a bad start, too. <laughs> That's some we've got in common there. But um, yeah, you went into some really good times. Uh, reading that your first cup final was the 82 Scottish Cup final proved to be so significant. It was the first of many that you went to. You only missed one cup final out of um, an 18 year period. Um, just, no. Sum up what that day meant. You no, know, it obviously went on to mean even more than what happened a year later. To be honest with you, you know, when I look back on it, I never expected Aberdeen to lose any games. So whenever we played, I fully expected them to win. That just comes with the, the, the innocence of youth, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when we went into the cup final, I still didn't quite... I'm trying to think how old was I? So I would have been nine I still don't think at that time I fully understood the concept of the game. You know, I understood it from a, a winning and losing point of view, and I understood the emotional side of it, but the impact side of it I was still working on, and I think my brain was still processing that as a nine-year-old. And I think the 82 Cup final was really significant for me because it was the first time that I fully understood the significance of the win and why it was important to win that game. Um, and again, we were very lucky because my, my late grandfather got us the tickets for the game, as he did for all of our cup finals, because my, my late grandfather was a, a football journalist. So, um, so we got all our tickets through him, and we were sat in the old main stand, predominantly surrounded by Rangers fans, which was an experience in itself. And I know my <laughs> mum and dad were slightly uncomfortable with that. Um, so we were... If you can imagine looking out to the pitch, we were about four or five seats in from the um, the byline. So when Gordon Strachan scored his goal in extra time and, and ran towards the the main stand with that little trickle of blood running down his nose, uh, you know I'm still convinced to this day that he was looking directly at me and smiling at <laughs> me. <laughs> you know, um, so we had the perfect um, vantage point for for extra time when we saw the. Mark McGee's header, Gordon Strachan's goal, obviously Tati scored at the other end. But it was it, it's a day again that I've never forgotten. I remember I can still recall turning and my dad lifting me up and putting me on the seat 
so that I could see Willie Miller lifting the trophy away to our left, away and up. And when he lifted the trophy, every you know the, the whole of the Aberdeen end just going mental. Um, so that was from an emotional point of view. That's when I really started to, to understand the significance of it all. So yeah, 82, my God, it was a fantastic memory for me. Still very vivid. Yeah, the only time I got to see Willem at Hamden was a game against Queen's Park, his last ever game in 1990. So, ah, yeah. um, you know, we were lucky there. <laughs> yeah. Shame, shame. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't mind being quite young, but sometimes I look back and it's, I think, um, that's kind of an era I would have liked to have been in. Um, so I can't mean, um, speak to a fellow Aberdeen fan without mentioning uh, the two greatest games in the club's history. So, first of all, by Munich, Pitoji's greatest night. Um, just just, just describe that feeling. It's a feeling, apart from Gothenburg, if we're talking specifically about Petodri, it's a feeling that I had that has never been replicated since. Because I think the emotions as a child completely differ to the emotions as an adult. So again, the sort of the, the innocent naivety of it all I didn't understand the away goal rule at the time. So it was all quite confusing to me. So when John Hewitt actually scored the winner, you know, my dad was going mental. My mum was going mental. It was bedlam all around us. And all I'm doing is, is trying to attract my dad's attention by pulling his, uh, the sleeve of his jacket, asking him if we were winning the game because... I, <laughs> Because he, he, he tried to explain to me the away goal rule when we were queuing to get a pie and a bottle at half time and saying that we needed to be careful and be, because it was 1 1 at half time. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously at the time, Bayern Munich were winning on the away goals rule. So my dad was trying to explain to me what that meant and what it was all about. So when Bayern Munich scored their second goal mm-hmm. and then Aberdeen equalised, I was still so are we winning? Are we losing? Are we drawing? What does it mean? And dad was trying to explain to me. And in that sort of, I don't know, 30 second period, um, I can still remember him looking up and looking away at me when he was trying to, mm-hmm. to, to explain it to me. And then him just coming off his seat, you know, like, like a, a jack in the box. Um, and then he explained it to me in that whole moment of utter bedlam that we were winning the game, which meant we were going through it was honestly, John. It was just unbelievable. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It was <laughs> just an incredible night um, from beginning to end. And what made it even more special was where we were sat. So we were about four or five rows up from the players' entrance, the players' tunnel. So I could see all the players coming in from their pre-match warm-up. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was the first time that I really saw them that close. So I found that hugely exciting. I saw them coming out, coming back in at half time, going back out. And then when the team came out for the lap of honour, it was just unbelievable. And, um, you know, when I look back on the TV footage, um, I can see myself because I, all I did was stood in the, my mum put me on the seat. So I was stood on the seat and I was just waving my Aberdeen flag above mm-hmm. my head. And I can see myself on the footage. Um, so, you know, to be able to see that, knowing it was, you would, obviously you would never know it was me. Because uh, I was uh, I was only what was I ten years old, um, but I know it was me because of the actions I was doing. <laughs> so it, it was just an unbelievable night. And but again, 
with the, the, the innocence of youth, I, ex- I expected nothing else but us to win the game and to go through. So, again, when you, you read the newspapers the next morning and start to understand the emotions of it all and the significance of the result against the significant Bayern Munich team, mm-hmm. which were huge at the time, you know, European giant, and the players that they had at the time, Klaus Hagenthal, Karl-Heinz Rummenigger, my God, German legends. So, uh, sometimes it's really difficult to put it into words, the emotions of that night, but um, I... I I haven't experienced it since because, as I said at the, at the top, the, the emotions as a child are completely different to one of those as an adult because when you're an adult, you understand everything and you understand exactly what it means. Um, so, you know, because when you're a kid, I don't think you have the relief emotion, but when you're an adult, you do. So, um, yeah, it was, oh, my God, what a night. Jeez, oh. Yeah, what a night that was, but um, what a night Gothenburg turned out to be. I read in your mm-hmm. book, um, Big to Differ, um, that um, you've, your dad's aviation company um, managed to get a flight out um, for the game. Um, just just describe that flight getting out there in the buzz, knowing that you were going to a European final. Or again, because you were quite young and almost naive, did you not really take it in as much as you would have liked? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I guess so, because people have actually asked me before, would I have preferred to have been there as an adult? Um, and sometimes I think, yes, because I think if I had been an adult, I would have maybe um, had more recollection um, of the event. I think I would have um, recorded more of the event. Um, you know, I'm very lucky to have my, my dad's old cine movie footage um, which has been used in a number of documentaries and, and continues to be used in documentaries um, but you know if you put a gun to my head and ask me what did I prefer I prefer it as a child because it's just a fantastic memory that I have and it's something that will always stay with me and it, it, it catapults me back to a time when you know I've, I've, you know I've lost both my parents now so it catapults me back to that time when I can think about my parents and I can think about the amazing times that we had together as a family. So, I, I, no, I'm, I'm glad it happened when it happened in my own lifetime. So I was only 10 years old when it happened. And again, it's, it's, it's an event that has never escaped my mind. I can still see it very vividly in my mind. Everything I can see. Um, nothing has escaped my memory from that night at all. Um, the trip over was, it was just great fun. It was just singing and dancing all the way. We get to Gothenburg and, you know, my dad had organised for us to, to jump on a bus, which took us into Sweden, or Gothenburg city centre. And it was a luxury bus. I'd never been on a luxury bus before with TVs on the back of the seats. Imagine that. In 1983, <laughs> TVs on the back of the seats. Wow. Um, I just, I couldn't believe it. Um, so that, again, that's an abiding memory. And I can remember the trip into Gothenburg. I can remember the, the kerfuffle with my dad in reception because it turned out that his booking was nowhere to be seen. Um, and he, I, I don't actually quite know what he did, but there had been a double booking or something like that. And he was able to eventually get his what was probably the last room left in the hotel. Now, there was a party of uh, 
two, four, six, there were six of us, right? So he managed to get us into what was a single room with one single bed, um, completely cramped, but six of us into the room. I don't know how he did it, but he just got us in there. So that was our base. And I remember going out into the city centre in the afternoon, and I remember being in the, the big mall, in the, right in the city centre, and all the Aberdeen fans around us. And then I remember coming out and seeing the rain for the first time. And it was unbelievable. And it carried on and carried on and carried I didn't stop. And I remember the adults in the party actually discussing whether the game was going to go ahead in the hotel when we got back. And I remember as we made our way to the stadium, it was like rain that I'd never seen before. And we were still, actually, I think from memory, my dad was convinced that the game wasn't going to go ahead. And we actually turned up quite late. We, we got into the stadium as the teams were walking out the tunnel. So we only just got in as the teams walked um, out of the tunnel. And our original vantage point, I couldn't see anything at all. So we, where we stood was where the game kicked off. And Eric Black hit the bar, and I didn't see it because I had this big lump standing in front of me, so I couldn't see anything at all. And I was screaming at my dad when the crowd were going mad after Eric hit the bar, but I couldn't see anything. So what we did was dad moved this further down, because by that point we were soaking wet anyway. So he went, screw it, we might as well just go further down where the boys can see. So we, we, we actually made our way further down. Um, and that, and then we, we could see absolutely perfectly. Um, and thankfully, I was able to see Eric Black's opener. John, honestly, you know, you just have to ask anybody that was there. It's just an incredible event. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't really pick and choose um, for a moment like that whether you'd rather be a child or adult. You just got to take in what you've what you've been given, and you obviously exactly. got that family experience. You know, was your brother out there with you as well? No, sadly, Peter was only seven years old at the right, time, so he, he, he had to stay behind. So it was my mum and dad and our next-door neighbour, Bill, and um, the local bank manager, um, who was a really good friend of the family as well. So Peter actually stayed with um, with the Bremners overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I've, I thought long and hard about my brother not being able to get to Gothenburg. And my mum and dad made the right decision, because I think when you're seven... Mm-hmm. You're not quite able to take it all in. Um, so what I did to make up for Peter not being there, when it was the 25th anniversary of Gothenburg, mm-hmm. I had arranged to get a replica Cup Winners' Cup jersey, and I was able to get every single signature from every every player that was involved. I gave it to him for his um, for his because it was his 40th birthday as well. So I gave it to him for his 40th for his 40th birthday. And uh, I got a really nice picture of John Hewitt scoring the winner, and I got John to personally sign it to him as well. So he's got the shirt framed with the picture at the bottom of the frame, and he, he, I give that to him for his 40th birthday to make up for him not being there. Um, and apart from his children and his wife, that's his most prized possession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite right. No, it's a, a really good possession that to have. Um, and as as for the game itself, you know, we all know the story. Um, Aberdeen take on the Giants of Real Madrid, beat them two one. Um, and when that final whistle goes, you know, just sum up. Um, I'm asking the obvious. Sum up the um, emotions um, at the end of that game. I think it was more relief. Than anything. Because of the free kick at the end. Yeah, because of the free kick. 
because um, I, again, I can clearly remember my dad giving it, oh, no. Um, you know, the, the, I remember my mum was stood like that. I'm sorry, I need to explain. So she had, her, she had her hands over her mouth, you know, cupped over her mouth. And there was a deathly silence. I remember that. There was a deathly silence. And we had the perfect view to it because it was directly across the pitch at an angle. And when he, when he first hit the ball, I thought it had gone in because the ball hit the water and it stopped almost dead. Mm-hmm. So by the angle that I was looking at it, it looked like the ball had nestled in the corner of the net, right? Whereas in fact, it had just skimmed the post and gone past and hit the water and almost stopped dead. Um, so it was behind, the ball was behind the goal, but it looked like it was mm-hmm. in the net. And I went, and then I heard the cheer from behind me and all the fans going mad and my dad going, yes! And... Um, <laughs> That's when I knew that he'd missed. And then obviously uh, uh, Jim Lake kicks the ball out and the full-time whistle goes. And again, it was just, it was just utter bedlam. What I remember is I remember just jumping up and down, you know, just up and down, up and down, up and down. And then I can just remember a sea of people just coming past me because we were on the benches, right? So the benches were a good sort of, a good maybe foot apart, yeah, a, a yeah. sort of lower one above each other, if that makes sense. And right. people were just hop, hopping down, right? And it was just people were throwing the cushions up into the air and there were scarves and hats going everywhere. And uh, I remember turning and my mum and dad were hugging and um, our two friends, they'd all got on themselves in a group hug. And I was with my best mate, Ewan, who, who, who also came with me at the time. He was, Ewan was 11, I was 10. And, uh, you know, we were hugging each other and, it was just, it was just absolutely unbelievable. But again, like I explained before, through the innocence of youth, I expected nothing else. I expected nothing else but us to win. Um, but it was the relief more than anything else on that free kick, you know, because yeah. um, that was a, that was a really nervous moment right at the death of the game. Um, so when the whistle blew, it was, it was, it was a mix of emotions, you know. Yeah, and you get to when you get home, um, you manage to get to the stadium um, at the end of the game, which is just also jam packed when the team finally come down through Union Street. Um, another um, amazing moment to savour. I think Aberdeen looked as though um, Aberdeen was given a national holiday that day. Yeah, well, we flew back in the early hours of the morning and uh, we got in first thing. And I remember going home, getting changed. And then I remember going to the school to pick up Peter. And my dad said to me, you're getting a day off school because we're going to go to the stadium and welcome the team home. So I remember being sat in the back of the car in the middle and the two uh, the two adults were beside me with Ewan beside me as well. And I remember them grabbing Peter and throwing Peter into the car. But what I, what I really recall about that is all my school friends, all their heads popping out over the top of the wall, and looking at me and Ewan in the car, and you sort of got that sense of celebrity, and you know, <laughs> we're famous because we went to Gothenburg and you didn't, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I, can, I can clearly remember that all the, the the eyes peering at us through the over the wall and through the car, and then getting off to Petodre, parking up on the beach, walking across, getting into the stadium, um, and being in the stadium for what felt like an eternity. And uh, eventually, when the team arrived. 
um, um, I remember my dad filming it. I've got, again, the old Cine movie um, film of the team coming out. Again, it was just fantastic. And uh, Ewan and I going onto the pitch, I remember that as well. Ewan and I uh, dared each other to go down and get onto the pitch. So I asked my dad, can I go onto the pitch? And he said, you can go on, but you go on and you come straight back up again. So Ewan and I quickly ran down the stairs, got through the gap at the end of the, the main stand, between the main stand and the paddock. And we got yeah. through there, got onto the pitch, had a little dance and a little jig, and then came straight back up again. Good, good boys. Um, yeah. school, school must have been good at that time. Oh, it was unbelievable. I remember going back the next day and I had my Aberdeen scarf on and everybody was just asking me about it and just feeling like the most important person in the school that <laughs> morning. It was just it was just an absolutely fantastic feeling. And uh, I had to write a, you had to write a diary as part of the curriculum back then. You had to write a diary. And um, I just, it was quite obvious what I was going to write about. So I just yeah. wrote about my, my trip to Gothenburg. Yeah, fantastic memories. Um, Brian Moore um, on the um, at the end of that game said that um, it wouldn't be surprised if Aber- if that was the last um, that wouldn't be the last Aber- um, European trophy they went. Obviously they won the Super Cup, but there was a um, there's a couple of games which I've pinned down as potential what if moments. Porto being one of them, and IFK Gothenburg in '86 European Cup quarter final, losing that last minute goal, um, which ultimately end up putting us out are those moments that you look back and think those are ones that got away it's interesting for me now obviously with, with when I write the blog um, because I can recollect it as a child and remember how I felt about it as a child and then sort of as a mid-teenager so what I try to do when writing my blogs is try to convey the emotion from a fan's point of view and then convey that in a question to the players that were involved in the game mm-hmm. to get it from get more of an understanding from their point of view and really understand the disappointment of it all. With Let me start with Porto because Port, Porto was gut-wrenching and I only really fully started to appreciate the significance of that defeat about 20 years later. So my, my dad and I, my dad... Before he passed away, my dad had a tourism business in Scotland, bringing tourists from all over the world and just drive them all over Scotland. So I was up from uh, my home in Hertfordshire, where I was living at the time, and I was doing my Scottish Football Association coaching badges. And I had a couple of days off. So dad said to me, come on, let's go for a drive. I've got a couple of meetings up north. So um, in fact, he had a meeting over at Aylan Dolan Castle. So he said to me, come on, let's go for a drive for the day. So we jumped in his, his little minibus and off we went. And we got speaking about Aberdeen, as we always did. And we started talking about the Porto game. And I have two very vivid recollections of that game. Firstly, the fog. And secondly, it's the only game where I've ever caught the ball. So we were sat in the south stand quite low down towards the pitch and the ball just went up pop, 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 and it just landed in my arms and I threw it back to Stuart McKinney. Only time I've ever caught the ball at the game. The defeat was absolutely gut-wrenching. It was it was just horrific. Um, and again, it's only recently where I've been able to fully appreciate what a fantastic goal it was that the boys scored. What a goal it was. Because um, I did a blog with Mickey Walsh who played for Porto that night. Um, who was their big Irish centre-forward. And... Uh, so when I looked back in the footage and saw the goal, I was like, Jesus, what a finish that is. 
But at the time, couldn't see it because of the fog, yeah, because the har was right across the pitch. So there, again, there was like this hush, and then there was like a groan when people started to realise what had actually happened when Porto had scored and we were now two 0 down, having to win the game by three goals. And there was like this, I don't know, it was like a moment of realisation. Scoring three goals in 15, 20 minutes, however long was left. Um, so getting back to the story with my dad, he said to me, because I remember when we got home, he walked in the door, my mum my grabbed him, and she started sobbing uncontrollably. I couldn't understand that. And I was thinking, look, I know it's, it's really upsetting that we've lost the game and we've gone out of Europe. Why is she sobbing so much? I could never understand it. So then I asked my dad about it when we were on the trip, and he said to me, look, he said, after the first leg, which we lost 1-0, we fully expected Aberdeen to win the return leg at Pataudry and get to the final, which was in Basel in Switzerland. So he had organised a train for the fans to go from Aberdeen to Felixstowe, from the ferry across to France, and then another train all the way up to Switzerland. Right? He took enough deposits um, to fill the train. If Aberdeen had got to the final, he, his business would have made 60,000 quid profit. Right? Now, 60,000 quid in 1984 is a significant sum of money. And that's when I fully understood why my mother was hoping as much as she was. Um, because, you know, when... When Dad and I took the trip, I was an adult, um, earning my own money and fully understanding the, the, the concept of money. But in 1984, I did not still fully understand the concept of money. So, um, you know, it was, a du- it was a double whammy, Porto. Oh. Gothenburg, was com- Gothenburg was completely different because that's just one of those, man, you know, we went through that whole competition without losing a frigging game. And... We could have been playing in the European Cup semi-final. Yeah. You know, it's just a what-if moment. Um, I remember talking to Billy Stark about it, and Billy said that he missed a header in the Ulave Stadium quite close to the end, which he knew he should have scored, and he says it, it bugged him for quite a few years um, that he had that he had a chance, and he, he knows that that goal would have put Aberdeen into the semi-finals of the European Cup. So, ah. Yeah. I think it's a wonderful thing, yeah. I know. Gothenburg, to be fair, weren't a bad side. They won the UEFA Cup the following yeah. year against United, of course. And I, I just look at the fact that Bucharest won that tournament. Um, it just sums up, to be honest, Ali, the difference of the eras. You know, when you get teams like Stoia Bucharest ourselves winning European trophies, I've kept Gothenburg. You'd be lucky if you see these teams in the group stages of a Champions League or, UF, or, or Europa League these days because it's just so dwarfed and it's um, it's quite sad to see I mean we're st- what are we 35 years since Aberdeen last won the league and that's the last time a Scottish side of West Celtic Rangers won it it's quite sad yeah it's uh, unfortunately it's just indicative of the, the the way the way football has gone um, football is a business mm-hmm. it, uh, it's not a sport anymore and I just think that's just the the, the realisation of it all, the truthful realisation of it all. And yeah, I find it very sad. I find it quite troubling. Um, but 
that is the way that it is. And unfortunately, yeah. whether we like it or we don't, we just have to accept it. Yeah. Um, I find it quite stagnated. Um, I wish there was a little bit more competition. I, I personally have no idea how to improve the competition. But as I've said time and time again, John, you know, no matter the size of the club, um, you know, if you're playing Celtic, Rangers, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, whoever, at the end of the day, it's 11 against 11 on the pitch. So it's how you prepare for the game. It's how you conduct yourself on the field of play. It's how much you want to win it in here, in your heart. Um, it's, it's down to how the manager puts across his tactics. But at the end of the day, it's 11 against 11. Um, and I don't care if someone's earning 100 grand a week or 5 grand a week or 500 quid a week. It's how much you've got in your heart and it's how much of an application you can put in during the 90 minutes which will determine the result. And if you go out there and have the absolute game of your life, um, you never know what can happen. Um, we've seen it time and time again. Look at the teams from the Faroe Islands who are qualifying, uh, sorry, from the Faroe Islands who are qualifying for the Europa League and are winning games in the qualifying stages. Yeah. But don't tell me that those players are any better than the players that we've got. Because I, with the greatest respect, I don't think they are. But I tell you what, for them to get through the, the qualifying stages as they did, by gosh, they've got to have some heart. And they've got to have a very, very strong mental attitude to be able to do that. So um, I've always said it. It's always about the application on the field of play. Yeah, and definitely. That will eventually determine the result. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been speaking to... Um, I was on Grant Campbell's um, Campbell's Football's podcast. He was asking me about my um, story about Sporting Aberdeen. He was asking about um, the, Euro, the Europa League. Um, is it a big bugbear that we haven't even got to play off, off round? We've had some chances over the last few years. I mean, you can maybe argue Sporting Lisbon's a different case last week, but, you know, I think... Kyra Omati was a missed opportunity. Maribor definitely was missing a penalty over there. Um, and Aplon. Um, and when you see teams with the greatest respect, like the Shamrock Rovers getting in there, there's no excuse why Aberdeen haven't got that far, other than it's a mental block. I think if I'm correct in saying it's now we've gone out of the qualifying stages it's six out of seven years. Yeah. Um, the third qualifying round. It's not good enough. I'm sorry. It's not good enough. We should be qualifying for the group stages. We are good enough to be qualifying for the group stages, but for some reason we're not. So what is going on? Um, and I think the, there needs to be some sort of post-mortem. I think there needs to be a better understanding. Because last week against Sporting, I actually thought we played quite well, but I felt that we played with caution. And I felt that when, when they scored early on, I felt that as much as we were trying to take to the game to them, we were also slightly cautious in our approach. Yeah. And when we did get in behind them and eventually started cross the balls getting into the box, we were looking dangerous. And I thought to myself, I don't understand why we can't have that attitude for 90 minutes. Because what are we doing here? Are we, are we going across looking to just sit in, hit them on the break um, and soak up all the pressure or, I know you, I, I get that you can't go gung-ho. I understand that. You can't do that against teams like Sporting Lisbon and, um, to a degree, Rangers and Celtic. I don't think we can go gung-ho against them. But I think we should be going into these games without much fear. And I think we should be a little bit more positive 
in our approach in these games. Um, because when we are positive, we are getting in behind teams, we are creating chances. And in general, I think we're playing quite, quite well. And I have to say, I think, apart from the Rangers game and the Motherwell game, I've been quietly encouraged by the way that we've played this season. I have to admit, when we lost the Rangers, I was like, oh, jeez, here we go again. This is going to be a long season. But all of a sudden, we just turned it around. And I think we've played some good stuff. Yeah, but that, it needs to stay consistent. What happened against Motherwell? I just don't get it. Um, and these are the type of games that are going to kill us. And these are the type of results that are going to kill us. And it, 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 it brings a type of mindset which is discouraging. And it brings a mindset which is negative. I don't want that. And I think for me personally, I'm only speaking personally here, I find it incredibly frustrating knowing the standard of football that we can play, but also knowing the standard of defeats that we are susceptible to. Mm-hmm. Because with Motherwell, we took 10 steps forward after playing so well in European games and in the league after Rangers. But then with the Motherwell game, I felt we took 20 steps back. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want the team to do that. Because um, for me, it just breeds negativity. So Europe for me has become a bugbear. We have got to qualify for the, for the group stages and we must qualify for the group stages. And I want, I want to know why we're not. And I think, I think all of us as fans, we're entitled to know why are we not qualifying for the group stages? Yeah, we've had enough cracks at it. As you say, six out of seven, the only one um, that we weren't in that stage was Burnley, um, who had like 120 million um, budget ahead of us. But, but even at that, on on our day, we can, we gave them a game. Why aren't we um, beating teams like Maribor? With the greatest respect to these teams, but you know, mm. this, it's not household names. I mean, um, but um, that's just where we are. I mean, the Motherwell game... Obviously, the McKenna thing didn't help Hoban um, not being fit enough to play two games that week. But I think we made a mistake in putting McCrory back into defence. He's a midfield player and a good one. Completely at that. agree. Completely agree. When he plays in midfield, the team seems to tick. Um, but you know, who knows what goes through the thoughts of the manager? Maybe the manager didn't. Have, of course, he would have had a choice. But maybe he felt that at that time, Ross was going to be what would have been our strongest player to play in that position. But for me, it was not the right decision. He should be... When you've got players who are best in a certain position, play them in that position. I've never understood that tactic. Um, you know, always play your strongest players in their strongest position. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree with that. Um, we'll come back. Um, but before we go back to um, Aberdeen a bit later and, and go into your um, out-of-football career... Um, as we mentioned, Aberdeen were back-to-back champions in 84, then 85. Um, again, at that point, being young and being used to Aberdeen winning, um, is it, was it just one that you took in your stride at that point and winning the cup finals at that time as well? Yeah, totally. Just, again, never expected anything different. Fully expected us to go into the game, winning it and winning it comfortably. Um, I understood the calibre of opponent, as in when we played Celtic in the Scottish Cup final, when we played Rangers in the Cup finals. I, I didn't overly fear hearts um, because in 1986, I felt, I, even then, I, I actually recall thinking after they lost the league in the manner that they lost the league, that they wouldn't have enough to beat us in the Cup final. Um, 
I think by that point they'd already run out of steam and the impact of losing the league in the manner that they did, mm-hmm. I couldn't see them getting it back. So going into these games, I had no fear. Um, so, but as you get older, you know, obviously you start to understand more the emotional side of it. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the significance of beating these teams and qualifying for Europe and winning trophies and just enjoying the moments again. And what was great for me was I enjoyed it all with my family. Um, and Peter was by now old enough to come to the games as well. So us, as a quartet, were able to enjoy the games um, more and more. And it was just, again, it's, it's said it time and time again, John, I'm completely blessed to have grown up in that period, um, watching the team winning title after title, cup after cup, um, trips to Europe, trips down to Glasgow on a regular basis, um, trips down to the capital and Dundee on a regular basis. Very blessed to have a, a wonderful childhood supporting Aberdeen and the sacrifices that my mum and dad made to make sure that we went to football on a regular basis. So very lucky, very blessed and something that I've not taken for granted. Yeah, that, I mean, there must have been a point in your life where at home that um, you weren't going to get those days back and... Uh, um, the Aberdeen were no different to Hearts and Hibs and St Johnson etc. Um, when did that moment hit for you? you know, it hit me in 94-95. Why? Because that's when we started properly struggling because we were still competing yeah. with Rangers at the top end, had a couple of cup finals. Um, so 94-95 when we were battling survival, that's what hit me. Yeah, yeah. You see, the, the, the emotional side of it started to differ for me when I actually stopped going to games on a regular basis because yeah. I, by, by the age of 13, 14, that's when I started playing boys club football in the city. So I was missing a lot of games because I was playing myself. Um, so and I, I, I remember missing going to Pataudry on a regular basis. We would, we would try and go to as many midweek games as we could if I wasn't training. And my dad would try and take me to games as often as he could when I wasn't training. But on a Saturday, it became more and more difficult to go to games because I was playing myself. Um, so I, I remember actually starting to feel a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, unattached, dis- detached. Is that the right word? Is that the right word I'm looking for? Um, I wasn't, I, I, I felt I wasn't, distanced, yeah. I felt I wasn't quite attached to to the club anymore as I, what I had been in the past sort of four or five years. So I I, I can recall thinking to myself, oh, I want to go to Pataudry today. I really want to go to this game. But I knew I had a boys club game to play in. So I was having to deal with that as well. So when things started to turn in terms of the fortunes of the club, I think by that point, my emotions had completely different where were different, sorry, because even though the fortunes of the club had turned on a sixpence, my emotions were completely different because I hadn't been there as often as I had been. I hope I'm making sense here. I feel I'm yeah. talking gobbledygook a wee bit. Um, so, so it didn't, even though it bothered me, of course it bothered me that we started to struggle and we, and we weren't winning trophies and we weren't winning league titles and we weren't playing in Europe as often as we were. I didn't find it as much of a problem 
as maybe what I would have done four or five years previously when I, when I uh, was yeah. going every single week to nearly every single game. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled with it when I moved away from the city. So when I moved down to London, that's when I really felt detached from, from Pataudry, from, um, from Aberdeen, because, you know, you're, 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 it's just a natural progression that you're just not going to feel emotionally attached to something when, you know, you're 500, 600 miles away. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and having to look up results in CFAX and football yeah. focus, and yeah. it's just not the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, page three one zero. I think it was in C. Ah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, sad. I still pretty much remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, you were part of Aberdeen Boys Club. I, I know you spoke to Callum McFadden about how the disappointment of being released. What I want to ask you, I mean, after leaving Aberdeen, how come you didn't go into another football club and ended up doing modelling? To be honest with you, all I ever wanted to do was play for Aberdeen. It's it's it still bugs me to this day. It's just all I ever knew. It's all I ever wanted. I wanted it so badly. Um, so when George Adams pulled me in one Thursday night and just said, "Look, you know, we're just not going to invite you back," um, it, I was devastated. I was absolutely. It was traumatizing for me. I was only how old was I? I was. I think I was sixteen. I think I'd only just turned 16. And it was the biggest blow of my life. Um, and apart from you know losing loved ones, it remains the biggest blow of my life. And all of a sudden, I was faced with just not knowing what to do next. And I lost my love for football. Just lost my love for it. Um, because I thought, if I can't play for Aberdeen, I don't want to play for anybody else. That was my mentality at the time. And yeah, maybe I could have... I, I, just, I could have worked harder. I could have sorted myself out quickly. Um, I could have got over the disappointment quicker. But it, I was so gutted about it that I just lost my love and my passion for the game. And I think I actually took six months away from playing. And then I came back and uh, started playing junior football in the city, um, which was fine. And I, I quite enjoyed playing junior football up to a point And I sort of went between one or two clubs and then I just didn't get on with some of the lads from a couple of clubs and just really didn't enjoy it, you know, and I, I that was when I actually made a decision that football was not going to be for me um, and I needed to start thinking about well, what am I actually going to do because by that point I was coming up to leaving school. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in sport in some capacity but didn't really know what or how or where and it just so happened that um, Aberdeen Leisure were looking for leisure assistance at the time um, on the old YTS scheme and I just thought oh maybe I could build a career working for a a leisure company get some qualifications start looking after people become qualified coach all that kind of stuff working in sports centres so I thought well maybe I can do it that way Um, and rediscover my love of football maybe through that Um, But then uh, the modelling started through my hairdresser, believe it or not. So my hairdresser, um, Ashoka in Aberdeen, who are still there to this day, and Philip and Malcolm, the owners of the the company, are. um, I've known them since I was like, maybe me. I've known Philip and Malcolm probably from the age of 10. 
Mm-hmm. Because my mum used to go and get a haircut there. And then she dragged me in. And I've been going ever since. So I've known these guys since I was like 10 years old, nearly, you know, nearly 40 years. So through getting my haircut with them, they used to go down to Edinburgh every year to compete in the national hair show, which meant they had to bring in models, give them nice hairstyles, and you'd have to walk down the, the catwalk and the, you would get judged on the hairstyle, right? So through that, <laughs> I, got, um, I got spotted by a, a modeling agency in Aberdeen and they took me onto their books and I started doing a few modeling jobs here and there, um, you know, a few fashion shows and all that kind of stuff, a couple of sort of editorial photo shoots for the Evening Express and the Press in general. <laughs> um, I, did a t- I did a TV commercial once for an old clothes shop in the Bonacord Centre called Bojangles, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I still have on VHS to this day. Um, Put so, it on your website. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Um, so, that, so through that, I got quite lucky. Um, and then the following year, uh, again, I competed with Ashoka in the, in the national hair competition and got spotted by a Japanese modeling agency. And they got in touch with me and invited me down to London. So I went down to London to see them. And I went down with a friend of mine who was also a model, but he was moving down to London to go and study the media at university. So Martin said to me, well, why don't you come with me and we can share a flat and we can set up base. I'll go to college or university and do the modeling part time and you try and make a career out of it. So lo and behold, at the age of 18, I think, I think I was 18, packed up my bags, packed up all my belongings into an old white transit van. My dad found as a driver from his company. Just said to one of the lads, look, I'll put you 100 quid if you drive my boys down to London and back. And um, Martin packed up his little flat in, um, in, in the city centre. And off we went. And we went down to London. And we spent a week walking around all the modelling agencies in London trying to get into an agency. Because the Japanese agent said to me, I want to send you to Japan, but what I want you to do is get into an agency here get a good six months to one year under your belt, build your portfolio of photographs, then I'm going to send you to Japan. So Martin and I spent a good week, as I said, literally walking the streets of London, trying to get into an agent. And I think it was the, the, it was one of the last that we went to. They were called Lorraine Ashton IMG. And I walked in, and by that point, I was feeling quite disheartened by it all because, <laughs> you know, you show people your portfolio and your photographs and they take one look at you and like that, you're having a laugh, son, you know. And it, it can be quite so destroying. Uh, you know, when you walk in and people don't even look at your portfolio, and, and you know, you're just literally, you walk in and sidestep and you're straight back out again. You don't even get to say hello to these people. <laughs> so it was really quite disheartening. <laughs> And then the guy from Louis and Ashton, he just took one look at my portfolio and said, right, I think you've got something. I think you've got a certain look. And yep, we'll take you on. I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I I remember coming down the stairs. They they had a spiral staircase to get outside. And I remember Martin in front of me, he literally skipped down these 
um, the spiral staircase. And I followed him and I nearly fell on top of him because our excitement, knowing that we were now both going to be moving to London um, and I was going to go to London to, to do full-time modelling. Um, so that's, that's how the modelling came along. And then literally about eight months later, um, I left IMG and signed up with Models One, who at the time were probably the biggest agency um, in London, um, if not Europe at the time. And my modelling career from there just took off. So again, very, very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. The right guy looking at my portfolio was able to get some really good jobs while working at Levine Ashton, which meant that my portfolio got improved. So when I gave it to Models One, they saw the potential in me as well. So again, John, you know, very lucky, very blessed. Yeah. Did you not get to go to Japan? Were you just happy where you were? No, no, I didn't get to go to Japan. I did eventually with the band. But that's <laughs> yes, and that leads us nicely on. Was it through the modelling that you ended up getting into the band, really? I mean, because how, yeah. how did it really come about? Just the usual Bad boy thing. <laughs> manufactured, um, completely and utterly manufactured. I was just sat in my... Um, a little studio flat in Chiswick in London. I was, I remember coming off the phone to my booker. So you had a booker at the, the agency and they would call you every day and say, right, you've got five appointments today. And these are the people you have to go and see. So I came off the phone to her. She gave me my appointments for the day. And I was just packing my little rucksack to get ready to go out. And she called me back and she said, look, we've just had a call from a music producer. He wants to see you. And he so happens to have his studio in Chiswick. Can you go down and see him? So I jumped on the number 94 bus, went down, not having a clue what I was doing, um, walked into the studio and saw all these discs and everything everywhere. I thought, oh, this looks quite impressive. And I, I genuinely thought that I was maybe getting casted for a music video or something. I had absolutely no idea why I was there. And this larger-than-life character came out and introduced himself. And I confess I'd never heard of him, never heard of the bands that he'd produced before told me he was putting together a band, asked me if I could sing, asked me if I could dance. I, he, he wanted to see my six-pack. <laughs> my six-pack. It's like you're having a laugh there, aren't you? Um, and, uh, and then it clicked. And I was like, oh, my God. I think this guy is casting me to actually be in a boy band. What the fuck? Right? <laughs> Swear if you want, mate. <laughs> it was just utterly bizarre. And I came away and I went home. I went straight home and grabbed a bite to eat. And then I went out to do the, the rest of my modelling appointments. But sort of being a little bit transfixed by what had just happened. And it just played on my mind all the time. And I remember coming out of one of the castings and going to a phone box and phoning my dad because it was really troubling me. And I told my dad what had just happened, and he thought, he thought something untowards had happened. You know what he happened to do? He asked me to take my top off, right? What have you done? What did you do? Oh, my God. Like, dad, relax. Didn't do anything. Um, so, and he was like, what, what's going on? What the hell? So he said to me, phone your agent and get clarification about what's going on. I said to my dad, I think he wants me to be in a boy band. And he's like, what the fuck is a boy band? <laughs> Um, and then it was really the following day when I got a call to go back and see him. And uh, I went back to see him. And this time, there was a PR girl there. 
There were two other lads there, uh, Matthew, uh, David and Tony. There was a record company manager there or record company uh, A&R guy and uh, music management guy there. And I'm, st I'm still all completely baffled by it. And it was while I was talking to the girl, Carolyn, who, was our, who became our PR girl, she took me to one side and said, are you getting this? And I said, no, I'm really not. And she said, look, this guy used to produce Take That. Who would Take That? I don't know Take That. She goes, they're a boy band, hugely popular. Okay. And she, she and I, I remember coming home after that, and my girlfriend at the time, she had a poster of Take That on her wall in her student accommodation, right? And I was like, oh my God, right. Now I'm starting to understand. And she, she bought a tape and she played me the tape of could, of could It Be Magic, right? And I was like, oh, I've had that on the radio. Okay. Oh my God. Now I'm really starting to get this. Um, and when I met David and Tony, you know, it's like, so are we going to be in a band together? And they're like, yeah, I think so. I said, can you sing? Mm -hmm. Can you dance? Oh, yeah, I can dance. Okay. What, what the hell's going on? <laughs> and then before I know it, I've signed a five-album record deal with A&M Records. And there you have it. And it was just, I remember going for dinner one night with a producer. And he was really, you know, you're really not getting this alley, are you? And I said, no, I'm really not. And he said to me, look, your life is a way to change it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn on its head and it's going to change like you've never known anything to change before. Um, and by God, it certainly did. Yeah, it sure did. I've all been three years. Um, I, I, in reading your book, um, you, you didn't quite get the, the attention that you were getting from the girls and the, and the media. Um, just... How did you deal with, you know, all those um, screaming teenagers, um, you know, saying, Ali, can I get your autograph, I get a picture? And, uh, and the touring aspect as well. How tiring was the touring? So the, the attention at first was fantastic. And anybody that tells you that they don't enjoy the attention on that level is a liar. It, mm -hmm. it was incredible. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, but I have to say, after a while, it, I started to question why. And I was starting to feel slightly uncomfortable about it all. The touring side of things, I loved. That was, for me, that was the best part of being in that band. You know, we toured all over the UK. We toured all over Europe. In fact, we toured all over the world. And it was amazing. We had an incredible time. And sometimes I look back at it and... Where, you know, when people post videos or they send me pictures of the band, I, I sometimes, I really have to pinch myself to think, God, that was me. Um, and how lucky and how fortunate I was to be able to go through that experience, especially now when I, not that I do watch them, but you see all these programs about people who aspire to be pop stars and are desperate to get record contracts and are a puppet on a string for people to make money through people phoning to vote, right? And I desperately feel sorry for these people. And these people are a hundred times more talented than I ever was when I was in that band. So I started, I started to get, um, I started to feel like a fraud. And I started to feel guilty because I knew there were so many other people out there who were incredibly talented, including the person who was my ex-girlfriend. 
because she was a, she was a performer, she was a dancer, and she'd gone to performing arts school and had lived with people who were the most talented people that I'd ever seen when it came to dancing and singing and entertainment. And here was me plucked out of obscurity thanks to a photograph that a record producer had seen. And here I am all of a sudden, a pop star who's on top of the pops, front page of, uh, you know, the front cover of Smash Hits magazine and uh, an article in NME music magazine, one of the most famous music yeah. magazines ever. I just started to think that I was a fraud and I just started to feel really, really uncomfortable about it all. Um, I felt the music was shite. I didn't like the music at all. Um, it was the one thing that really let us down because if the music had been produced better, I think we would have had more success. Um, I didn't like what was going on behind the scenes. I felt that... I wasn't allowed to have a say, that I wasn't allowed to be in control of my own career and my own future and my own destiny. And I started to feel out of control. And again, I didn't like that. But for all the disappointments and the frustrations, what was making up for it was the fact that we were, to a degree, slightly successful. We were touring the world. We had sellout concerts. We were popular. We were popular with the press. We were popular with the magazines. And I was performing in front of 100,000 people sometimes, doing the most incredible TV shows, like we were the first band to go on the first ever national lottery show. Now, when I think about it, of all the bands in the world, they chose us. Why? Why did they choose Bad Boys Inc.? to be the first ever band to appear on the first ever National Lottery show. And when I think about that, I think, Jesus, we must have been really popular. Um, and again, I have to really pinch myself that I had that experience. Um, you know, performing in front of royalty at the Royal Variety Performance at the Palladium Theatre, one of the most famous theatres in the world. So I, I, I have to look back on it, John, with a, I do look, at it, look back on it now, and only now, with a great deal of fondness, I, I, as I said before, I really have to pinch myself how lucky I was, how fortunate I was to go through the, the whole experience of that, that band. And I wouldn't be sitting here now talking to you if it wasn't for that band, because it gave me a platform to do other things. So for many years, I was angry, I was bitter, I had a chip on my shoulder, I was pissed off. But once I got over myself and I got over that nonsense, I was able to come full circle and really start to appreciate what a lucky boy that I really am. Um, you you rejected the I think it was um, Ant and Deck for Saturday Night Takeaway had asked you to offer reunited, like bands reunited, and you said no at that point. If they were to ask you now, would it still be the same answer? Yeah, absolutely. What's the point? What, you know, I'm not one for um, going back to doing things that I used to do. And I've worked too hard to gain any sort of respectability. And for me, to try and gain respectability was really important, especially when I stepped into the industry that I stepped into, which was sports broadcasting. Because what I didn't want was everyone to go, oh, he's a boy band member, or he used to be a boy, man, boy band member, or he's only here because he used to be in Bad Boys Inc. Um, 
I, I wanted to try and get rid of that monkey on my back. I, I didn't want to have that tag. Mm-hmm. And I think, John, you know, I, I, I have worked really, really hard in the past 25 years to try and become respectful for people to enjoy what I do, um, for people to respect me as a, as a sports broadcaster and as a person, not an image. Because Bad Boys Inc. was an image. Um, and people fell for that image, and I just—it's not for me. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not for me. And I see too many people stepping back into it and going back into it, and hoping that their 15 minute of fame might become 30 minutes of fame. It's an absolute nonsense. And I remember a while ago there was a guy from uh, a boy band who were hugely successful and hugely popular, and I read a report where he was pissed off that he was having to sign on. Um, And he felt that he shouldn't have to sign on because of his celebrity status. And I felt like getting in touch with the dude and saying to him, listen, my friend, you seriously have to get over yourself and go and get a job like everybody else, start earning money and start bringing back your inner pride. Because that's what I had to do. I had to swallow everything because I knew I got to a point where I had to start earning money again. Um, and I had to start getting back to some sort of normality. And it's incredible what it did to me because getting that normality back by working um, and earning money, I was able to get myself back on my feet, shake myself down, dust myself down and go again and able to reinvent myself as a completely different person that was once a member of Bad Boys Inc., and, you know, this, I read also that this guy was trying to sell his Brit award because he's got no money. Well, dude, swallow your pride and go and get a job like everybody else. Because it's amazing what it will do to your soul when you start earning money again. And you can pay your bills and you can pay your mortgage and stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's the most important thing to me. Yeah, definitely. It's good that you've come out the other end that way because you hit a low um, during what should have been a celebratory occasion, the 1995 Coca-Cola Cup final um, because of the Dundee fans. How big a turning point was that in your life? Oh, massive. Honestly, it's the biggest turning point of my life to date. Because at that time, the, the band had only recently split up. I was still very much going through the implications of what that meant. I was still trying to work it all out. I, I had no future. I had no money. Um, the phone had stopped ringing. Nobody was in touch. And it was, I felt lonely, very lonely. And I had no idea what to do next. And that cup final came at the right time for me because it was an escape. I was able to escape from my home in, in uh, just outside London. And I was able to come up to, to Glasgow for a weekend, see my gran, see my uncle, see my cousins, more importantly, see my mum and dad and my brother, and go to Hampden. And it was the first time that we'd been at Hampden together since the 92 League Cup final that we lost in, um, with the Gary Smith on goal. Yeah. Um, so it's the first time we've been together for a wee while. And it was really good. It was really nice because people had come over and recognised me from the band and there was a lot of banter being thrown about. And it was really good fun and it was just really good to be amongst my own people again. Um, 
And I was loving it. I was, I was really enjoying it. I was having great fun. And then I started getting recognized by some Dundee fans. And the abuse started. And the abuse was, was pretty horrific, I have to say. Now, I, I can handle the abuse. It, it's part and parcel. It's something that I'd signed up for. It was something I'd been warned about. It was something that I'd been told to be careful of. But it's how you handle it as a person. So um, when it started coming my way, it was to me, it was water off a duck's back. But what I didn't like was that it started to become very personal and it started to become abusive, very abusive. And my mum is in earshot of all of this. And my dad is within earshot and my brother, you know, and some of it started getting directed towards them. And it's just like, come on, guys, Jesus Christ. I was only trying to make a living for God's sake, you know. Um, and it started to just irk me a wee bit. And then Duncan Shearer scored that goal, and I just lost all control. I don't know what happened. I sort of, not that I'm trying to sound a bit daft here, but I almost had an out-of-body experience because I just went absolutely mental. And um, I just ran towards them and, and just, I can't really remember it now, but as in I can't, I, I can't remember what I, I remember the, the, the moment, but what I actually did and what I said is a bit yeah. of a blur because I just literally went nuts. Um, and I think the past sort of 12 months frustrations of everything that I had gone through with the band and the split of the band and everything that, I, that, that came with that, I think I just let, let it all out and let it all go in sort of a period of about, I don't know, 30 seconds, something like that. And before I know it, you know, I'm getting grabbed by, by my brother and my dad and... There was a couple of team fans behind me who just grabbed me and they, they, they just dragged me away from sort of that section. And um, I just remember my dad just coming right round me and just holding me. And, um, uh, just trying to comfort me. And, oh, Jesus. Okay, and just, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry. And my brother just holding me. And um, it was just... Uh, it was the moment when I thought to myself, now's the time I need to get back on my feet. Now's the time. Because I went home and I'm like, right, this is not going to happen to me. I've, 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 got to, I've, I've got to go for it now. You know, um, No more bullshit. I've not got to start worrying about that. I've got to stop feeling sorry for myself. And now it's time to go again. And I've got to pick myself up. I've got to dust myself down. And uh, I've got to reinvent myself. And I've got to come back bigger and stronger and get back making a living and decide what I'm going to do. And it was, it was in that moment, that sort of the few minutes after the goal and after my dad was holding me and people were asking if I was okay and my brother holding me if I was okay. And um, that was the moment when everything changed for me um, because the rest of the game, to be honest, was a complete blur, just a complete blur until the full-time whistle went. And that was because I was just in this state of subconsciousness, I think, um, about just everything that had just happened in that moment. And I, I, I don't hold a grudge against those Dundee fans. I'm not angry with them. I'm not upset with them because I get it. I'm a boy band member. You know, I'm an easy target. The team have just gone two goals down in a cup final. You know, I get it. Um, and in hindsight, as, as perverse as this may sound, I'm kind of glad it happened because it was such a defining moment in my life. Um, and it's something I've never forgotten, and I use it. Uh, I, I often think about it. Actually, I do. I think about it quite a lot. Sorry, I got a wee bit emotional there. I do. Um, You're entitled to Ali. It's always, it yeah. was a it was a bad it was a tough 
period in your life. And um, you know, that's obviously in the days before Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram, where nowadays, obviously, the abuse comes online, which is um, almost hard, to, almost harder to deal with. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, was it? I mean, I, I, I suppose it's. Like, People have that perception of you because you're a boy band, boy band member, and that people just don't take note of um, how people are feeling. And do you think that's something that um, Twitter and Facebook, etc., need to try and get more of a control over? Because whilst it's a great platform, um, it's some people are using it for the wrong thing. I, I've always said, John, that I think the invention of social media is the greatest invention, yet the most dangerous invention. Correct. Because it's it's become a playground for hate. And I don't understand these people who hide behind a username and a keyboard and think they have every right to go online and abuse people. Now, I've not, um, I've never engaged. I did when I first started on Twitter. I used to engage. If people would come to me and be, would have a go at me, I would engage back. I've stopped doing that. I stopped doing that a long time ago. Yeah. Because to be honest with you, I'm not wasting my energy on these people. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they don't like the fact that I'm an Aberdeen fan who lives abroad, who hasn't been to a game for a while, but has the status that I have because of my past, as far as I'm concerned, you can fuck off because I don't care what you think. Um, I'm entitled to support the football club that I love, that I've grown up with that I have a major passion for in the way that I want to support them. Yeah. And trust me, not being able to go to Pataudry on a regular basis is a dagger through my heart and has been ever since I left um, left the UK to move to Singapore and move abroad. Because when I was working in Glasgow, people forget, I lived in Glasgow for three years. I was working for Celtic TV, but I was watching Aberdeen every single Saturday because I was following the team all over the country. I didn't miss a game for nearly three years. And people forget that. Um, so it's it, it's a nasty, nasty playground. And it, it needs to be controlled more. But it's down to the individual. I, I, I just don't understand these people that do it. Why do you do it? Um, and I'm actually quietly grateful that social media wasn't around when I was in the band and it wasn't really around when I was presenting um, because I don't know how I would have handled the situation. I know how to handle it now because I block. Simple as that. If you give me any sort of abuse, I just block you because I don't care. If you've got a mentality where you come on and start abusing people because of the football club they support or because they used to be in a boy band, or because I once worked for a sports broadcaster, which meant I worked for a football club. You know, you're, you're going to hold a grudge against me because of that? Come on. You know, you, you, I used to say to these people, you need to go and get a key cut so you can get out a bit more. Go and explore the world a little bit more instead of just sitting at a computer in, your, in, in a darkened room and giving people abuse online. There's much more to life than that, trust me. Um, so, yeah, it needs to be monitored, John, because... It's, you have to be very careful, especially when it comes to people's mental health, because you don't know how that person is emotionally. Um, and sometimes, as we've seen in the past, abuse online can tip people over the edge and we have the worst of consequences. Um, and honestly, it breaks my heart. It really does. And it's got to be controlled. Hence why I do not engage, because I have no interest in engaging. 
Oh, quite right. Um, keep it for positivity, because I think to be fair to Mark Zuckerberg, that's what he, his vision was, bringing people together. I mean, from a personal yeah. point of view, it keeps me in touch with my uncle in Australia um, quite often. Yeah. So you get to see um, family photos, but I don't like the fact that, um, you know, media outlets, and I know you work in the media, so um, please don't test it on me, but a lot of media outlets post stories on it and I'm not comfortable with that because now you've got political experts online and uh, all the rest. <laughs> I try and stay away from like STV News and BBC News, to be perfectly honest. It's, it's the thing is, John. It's it's I, I get it. I totally understand it because it's it's the modern world. It's the world we live in now, and it's all about clicks. It's all about numbers. Um, it's all about statistics. Um, so. I get it. I really get it. And an online presence, whether we like it or not, is the way forward. I think it's the way forward for broadcasting. Um, I think it's the it's it's the future, whether we like it or whether we don't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for example, I watch I watch the Aberdeen games on my phone because unless I get a quiet ninety minutes, which when you've got a four year old and a seven year old is not very often, and you'll know with a brand new baby. Yeah, it's not very often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not very often when you get 90 minutes to yourself. Um, so on a Saturday afternoon, when I'm trying, if I want to watch the game, I've got it on my phone, and I'm trying to do my fatherly duties and my husbandly duties while I'm trying to watch the game on my phone because it means I can move about the place. Yeah. You know, I, it, when I was at Doha, um, if, if there was a, an afternoon game at three o'clock, depending if it was summer or winter. If the game kicked off at three o'clock in the UK, that's six o'clock in Doha. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing is I've got the phone. Um, if I'm bathing my kids, then I've got the phone propped up on the on the cabinet and I'm watching the game or bathing my kids at the same time. Um, so I think the day of sitting in front of a television and watching an hour's preview to a, a live game and an hour's post show to a live game, I think are becoming few and far between. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believe that the way the modern world is going, I think more and more people are starting to watch live sport online. Yeah. And I, I'm, watching sport online is obviously um, a way forward and I engaged in that myself. Um, it was it was more the point that, you know, news stories and um, clickbait goes on too much. Uh, but um, we'll dive out from that. Um, You've also been working in the media for um, in sports media for a long time. Started um, from my recollection, MUTV '99, just after they won the Champions League. Um, that must have been a great time to be working for that station because they hadn't been long up and running, I don't think. Only one year. They'd only been in operation for a year. I loved working at MUTV. Uh, I, I've said time and time again, it was my apprenticeship, and I was very lucky. Good to... apprenticeship. <laughs> it was fantastic. Honestly, I, I can't speak highly enough of MUTV and my time there because I learned so much. Um, it's it's where I really grasped an understanding of what it would take to become a football presenter slash sports broadcaster. So I was in an extremely fortunate position. Plus, I was also very lucky that I was able to um, gain the experience of being able to interview players and the manager and gain an understanding of what it takes to hold conversation with these guys while trying to get across um, the information that you're trying to put out there for the for the news programs and the magazine programs that MUTV produced. So it was, uh, it, honestly, I, I'm so lucky 
to have been at MUTV. But I also worked for a shopping channel before that, John. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've said to many, many aspiring presenters who have got in touch with me, I've said to them, look, if you can, if you can begin your career at a shopping channel, mm-hmm. from there, you will be able to do anything. Because a shopping channel is very, very challenging. And it, you're, you're on your own. You have to sell products that you may know nothing about. You have to fill airtime for two, three, four, five minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. There's no hiding place. You can't go anywhere. You can't say to the director, can we go to a commercial break because I've got nothing else to say. You've got to fill. And you've got to remember your viewer. You've got to remember telephone numbers and how to order things, websites. There's a load of information that you've got to take in. So I was extremely fortunate that I had a year presenting on Granada Shop in Liverpool before I joined MUTV. And I always thought to myself, if I can sell a pair of cotton sports socks for two minutes, I think I can fill for two minutes about football at the end of a TV show, you know? So um, the shopping channel was a fantastic grounding for me as well because I started to understand the mechanics of how television production worked. Um, And then at MUTV, it took me to another level. Then I had a few months at Sky Sports News, which was a completely different level. Um, And then I was lucky enough to get the the call from Satanta and come and work up in Glasgow for three years, which I absolutely loved. Um, And then out to Singapore and be able to take my career forward from there. So, again, like I've said a hundred times, very lucky, very blessed. Yeah. When you interviewed Sir Alex Ferguson for the first time, um, you know, obviously going back to... um, he was your idol and um, being imagined dabbled into glory etc etc and then you're interviewing him for the first time how much self-control did you have to maintain to you know not let yourself get um overawed by the fact you were interviewing like put your professional head on at this point i, I think I, well, the whole sequence of events meant that i was able to do that because there was a sequence of events that happened, John, which enabled me to sit down and have a professional conversation with him because it was only my second day at MUTV and that we were, um, I was going in as the presenter of this new kids magazine show and I'd only just been introduced to the girl who was going to be my co-presenter, a lovely girl called Jeanette. And um, our first job was to go down to the Old Cliff training ground and to interview Sir Alex for our very first youth magazine program, which was called Rents at Five. So we were told, get there, half past eight, don't be late. So thankfully, I only lived, at the time I was sharing a flat, uh, just moved up to Manchester, I was sharing a flat with a guy in the city centre. So I jumped in a car, but it wasn't long, it wasn't far for me to go to the club. And I was shitting myself. Oh my God, I was so nervous. I I was just a wreck. And I remember Jeanette, she gave me a dig with our elbow, I was like, will you calm down? And I was like, you've got no idea what this means to me, meeting this guy as an adult. I've met him many, many times as a child, but to meet him as an adult, it's completely different. So she's like, you'll be fine, don't worry about it, just enjoy the moment. And I was like, I know, I know. And I thought to myself, I, I, I need to try and break the ice with him. I, I need a tactic to break the ice with him. I need to get him to warn to me, how do I do that? Well, let's use my grandfather. So when he came out, he had a tracksuit on. Uh, Do you have a baseball cap? No, he had a tracksuit on, and a pair of white football boots, a pair of white football socks, and a pair of um, uh, what you call them, shower flip flops. You know, over the strap, over the the, uh-huh. the toes. And I just, 
And he looked smaller than what I could remember. But the presence just took my breath away. And I was just, oh, Jesus. Just had to really hold it together. He was my hero standing in front of me. So he came over and he was like, how are you? And how are you? What's your name? What's your name? And I said, Ali Beg. He went, Beg? And I said, yeah, Beg. And he said to me, are you, are you related to David Beg, the BBC sports commentator? I said, no. I said, um, my grandfather is John Beg. And he, I don't know what happened, John, but there was a, there was a change of body language. Let me put it that way, right? And his eyes almost lightened up. And he went, John Begg from Bishop Briggs, the old freelance football journalist. And I said, yes. You're his grandson? And I said, yes. And he says, right. And he turned to Jeanette and he just said, just give us a minute, please. And he turned to Di Law, who was, who's Dennis Law's daughter, who was the PR manager at the time. Yeah. And said, Di, just give Ali and I a second, please. And he took me outside, took me into his office. And he said to me, I love your grandfather. He was a great man. Um, got so much respect for him. And I will never forget what he did for me. So it turned out, and I, I, you know, I've told this story a hundred times before, John, that um, my grandfather helped Alex Ferguson go from East Erlingshire to St. Mewen because uh, the chairman of St. Mewen at the time was a guy called William Todd. He was good friends with my grandfather called my grandfather and said, I'm looking for a new manager. Who do you recommend? And my grandfather recommended Alex Ferguson. Right? So when we got speaking about this, he was asking about my dad and how we were. He knew I was an Aberdeen fan. So we spoke for, it was, it was only for about five minutes. Yeah. And he said to me, so you've joined us? I said, yeah. And he said, right. And he gave me a couple of tips, a couple of pieces of advice. Um, and um, he says, come on, let's go back through. Let's not keep the ladies waiting. And we did the interview and it was absolutely fantastic. It was brilliant and it couldn't have gone any better. Uh, Jeanette was amazing. She was so good and so relaxed with him and so cheeky with him, which really endeared her to him as well. And um, he was just brilliant and it, 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 was, it couldn't have gone any better. And the next day, I remember getting a phone call from the boss saying, look, really, really well done. It was fantastic. It was a great interview. They played it out in the news that night. Um, you've done really, really well, and you've set the bar. Now you've got to carry it on. And, you know, I only I only saw him, I don't know, maybe only a dozen more times in the next few years after that. I interviewed him two or three times. Um, I called upon him once for his advice, and he was fantastic. And when he found out that I'd uh, gone to Satanta, I came down and interviewed him uh, about Liam Miller, and uh, he took me to one side, and we had a cup of tea together, and... One of the greatest things that he ever said to me was, that anybody's ever said to me was, he said, do me a favour, don't ever change. Do not ever change. Um, and I, I, I found that, I, I was so flattered by it and so humbled by it, um, that I just thought, you know, I'm, I've, I've pleased the boss. It's the most important thing for me. I've, I've, he's happy with what, I've, what I did at MUTV. I made a couple of mistakes. I made a couple of silly mistakes, uh, which I learned from. Uh, I'm glad, in hindsight, I'm glad they happened because if they didn't happen, I wouldn't have learned from them, if that makes sense. So, and I've, I've you know, I've called upon him um, since um, for his advice and he's always been very welcoming. When my dad died, he got in touch with me, sent me a lovely letter um, 
often condolences and if I ever needed him, just to, to ring him. And not, not that I have, because I, 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 I don't want to ring him. Do you know what I mean? I just don't feel it's my place to do that. But if, I think if I ever desperately, desperately needed him, mm-hmm. um, I think I, I, I might pluck up the courage. But I think the boss has so many people in his lives and so much going on in his lives. The last thing he needs is Ali Beg calling him. <laughs> so again, just, um, just very, very lucky when I think back on my time at MUTV because it was just fantastic. Yeah, I know you mentioned on another podcast that you want Alex Ferguson on your um, your blog, so um, mm. I think um, you should pick up the phone at some point, um, otherwise you won't get yeah. that done. So Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's still very much, it plays on my mind. Um, should I call him and ask him? I think I will do one day. I will do one day. Yeah, I'm holding you to that. You, you better make that comment. <laughs> <laughs> so you obviously had um, a couple of great years at my United. Um, you were some great characters. You didn't you um, go up to Celtic TV. Um, we spoke briefly about how you overcame the initial fan hate mail that you were getting um, and how Bill and McNeil, because we obviously did the tribute programme, um, how much of good advice he gave you and you just managed to shrug that off from there on in. Um how much, apart from that, how much did you enjoy Celtic TV and working with Jim Craig? Loved it. Honestly, John, I had a fantastic three years there. I met some great people um, who have remained friends to this day. I was able to watch my team again on a regular basis. I had so much fun with everybody. Everybody knew I was an Aberdeen fan. So there was so much banter and good nature fun flying about all the time. Um, and because I was there to do a job, only a job, just there to do a job. I'm a professional sports broadcaster after all. So I was there to do a job for the football club. And even to this day, it's occasionally Celtic fans will touch base with me and say, I had no idea that you were a Celtic fan. But for me, that's the biggest compliment people can, can pay me about my professionalism. So I've always tried to remain professional. Um, and it was vitally important for me to do that. Billy McNeil told me, Got to, you've got to remain professional because otherwise you'll get eaten alive. Jim Craig said the same to me. You must remain professional. Um, you know, when I went up for the original meeting with my boss, he said to me, is it going to be a problem? It won't be a problem. Of course it won't be a problem. Um, uh, because I knew that there could be consequences if I wasn't professional about it. So, And I was still trying to build a career for myself. So it was important that I stayed professional. Um, but honestly, John, the, the football club were fantastic with me. Um, you know, when my father died, it was one of the, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, and they could not have done enough to put their arm around me and support me. Um, you know, Peter Lawwell, the chief executive, arranged for a bouquet of flowers to be sent to my mother. The first bouquet of flowers to turn up on the on my father's grave was from Celtic Football Club. The first person to call me was Neil Lennon. Um, so I, I think um, I have nothing but fondness um, of my time there and again from a professional point of view it was the right job at the right time because it was able to catapult me to my job in Singapore where I was able to take my career further forward um, and do Premier League football, Champions League football, European football, Asian football, and present that. So Celtic TV for me was 
the right, the right job at the right time and gave me the perfect grounding to fully understand what it took again to become a sports broadcaster. Um, but the fact that I got to meet a number of my heroes, Billy Stark, Gordon Strachan, uh, Whitey, Joe Miller, all the, Willie Faulkner, all these guys that used to play for Aberdeen. Um, you know, I, 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 I was very fortunate to become really good friends with Gordon Strachan. Um, I was very fortunate to become good friends with the wonderful Tommy Burns, yeah. who, who made fun of me constantly. Um, and Billy McNeil. You know, Billy McNeil used to come into the office and, where's that sheepy? Where's sheepy? It's the end today. And you'd come over and, you know, if Celtic had beaten Aberdeen at the weekend, you know, the grief he would give me, but all good fun and no harm intended. And um, it was just really, really, it was a really good time, John. It really was. And again, um, I feel very lucky to have, to have been there um, in that time because the friends that I've made there, you know, are my friends now and they'll, be, they'll remain my friends for life. Um, you know, Jim Craig is, Jim Craig became my adopted father. Um, him and his wife, Elizabeth, you know, they looked after me. They invited me into their home when I first moved up. I was supposed to stay for a week. I ended up staying with them for three months. Um, and whenever we go home, the first place we go to is Sterling so that we can, go, we can spend the night with Jim and Elizabeth. And we speak regularly. And to this day, he's still giving me advice. Um, and he's still helping me. And just the most wonderful human being. Him and Elizabeth, when, when I lived in Singapore, mm-hmm. they flew to New Zealand to go and see their son, meet their, meet their son who lives out there. And they came through to Singapore and stayed with me for two weeks in Singapore. Um, it, it was completely unplanned. I had the best two weeks with them. So, you know, to be able to, to say that a Lisbon Lion is a, is a good friend of mine, again, is just hugely flattering. Um, so, yeah, it was a great time, John. It really was. Yeah, uh, I hope that when in the few occasions that Aberdeen did beat Celtic in that time, behind the scenes that you gave a bit back. I, I was a... Oh, oh, listen, don't you worry about that. There was <laughs> plenty of grief given back. Sadly, it was few and far between, but um, oh, I, there was plenty given back, especially to Tommy Burns. <laughs> <laughs> I, can know, and I, I can imagine they would have took it in good stead as well. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He certainly did. And he, he had an answer for everything. He really did. Oh, he's such a nice man. Yeah, and reading your book before Celtic TV came up, Rangers TV, million dollar question, would you take it? Honestly? Mm-hmm. No. I don't think I would have taken that job. Um, it was, uh, that, that was, that was tough. That was really tough because I just, I, I was suffering from the time when I broke my leg really badly. So I, I lost all my work because of that. And I was on the periphery of losing my house um, because of the financial implications of losing all my work. So I was in, a, I was in quite a bad place at the moment. Um, and when I got the call to go and see who was the executive producer of Satanta Scottish, I went up to Glasgow to see him, had lunch with him. And he said to me, look, um, we're thinking about offering you the Rangers job. And honestly, my heart just sank. Because I had aspirations of actually produ- uh, presenting the Scottish Premier, Premier League. I wanted to produce the yeah. Scottish Premier League. Uh, sorry, present the Scottish Premier League, which was Rob McLean's gig. Um, Understand. I didn't, I, yeah, of course. And I didn't, I didn't actually know that there was going to be the club channels at that time. So when he told me they were setting up Celtic and Rangers TV, and then we're looking at you to do Rangers, I was just, oh, no, I just, I just don't think I can do this. 
But I knew I had to get back to work. And I spoke to many people. You know, I spoke to George Adams. In fact, I went to see George Adams about it um, because George was living in Glasgow at the time. I I drove up to see him. What do I do? And he tried to sell it to me from a purely from a professional point of view. But I just thought, I can't do this. Um, Because for me, these guys are the mortal enemies. And no matter my professionalism, I just don't think I can do it. Um, So when I drove up to Glasgow to meet the executive producers of the club channels, when he said to me, listen, I know that um, uh, they spoke to you about Rangers. I want you to come and work for Celtic. Um, I swear to God, man, I could have hugged him because Celtic I can handle. Um, And I had connections with the football club there anyway. So I knew that I could handle that. And I knew that no matter what, there there would be grief coming my way from both Celtic fans and Aberdeen fans. So I knew that I was going to have to handle that. Um, but, no, I don't think I could have taken the Rangers job, John. Well, you just look at, um, you know, the abuse that rightly or wrongly, um, mostly wrongly, in my opinion, uh, the David, that David Robertson got. Ah, I spoke to David Robertson, and I think in his defence, he didn't understand, he was a bit naive about the backlash he would, that he was going to get. You've obviously seen Ryan Jack in recent years. I'll keep that for another day. Um, there's, um, I think had you gone to Rangers, um, it would have been hard for you to take the abuse for the Aberdeen fans, if you ask my honest opinion. I wouldn't have given you it, but you know what Aberdeen fans can be like, unfortunately. Listen, I don't think, if I'd worked for Rangers TV, I don't think I would have been able to write my book. Um, and I don't think that people would have been able to understand why I took the job at Celtic and why I decided to take that job. Um, because I saw it as a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. Um, plus also, you know, as I said, at the time I was in, I was in difficulties. I was having serious difficulties at that time. So when it came along, very much like the MUTV job and everything else, it was the right job at the right time. And I am very grateful that I had that job because it led me to other things. I would never have moved to Singapore um, and then on to Qatar if it hadn't have been for working for Satanta and Celtic TV because you know, eventually I got spotted working for Celtic. So, um, and, you know, where, what I'm really lucky in is that there are people at that football club and who have played for that football club who have been out to Doha as guests and recognised me instantly and have come over and, and mm-hmm. picked up where we've left off. And, um, you know, when my mum died last year, you know, I got a number of messages from people at Celtic um, offering their condolences. And, um, again, it's been it's been ex- extremely flattering. I keep using the word flattering, but it, it is. It is. It really is. And it's humbling, you know. So, yeah, I've got nothing, I've got nothing but good words about that time. Um, that, the three years that I spent at Satanta. Yeah, excellent. Um, you probably got out a good time because obviously Satanta, a couple of years later, unfortunately went bust. Um, yeah. And that's when you went to Singapore. Um, yeah. How big a move was that for you? Because obviously that's you then going away from the UK for the first time since before um, you moved to Aberdeen as a kid. Yeah, that was a, that was a that was a big deal for me because my dad had only just died. Mm-hmm. So um, my dad died on the first of June. I was actually supposed to go on the 1st of July to Singapore, but I, I called um, Hugh, who was my boss out there, explained the situation. And he said to me, like, just come when you want. Just come over when you want. It's all fine. The job's here. It's not going away. So just take your time. Come when you want. And I think in hindsight, looking back, John, I think I probably, because I ended up going on the 1st of August 
So I think what I did was I was running away from what had just happened with my dad. And I just felt that I needed to get away um, from the realisation of, of losing my dad. So I, I carried quite a lot of guilt for a while um, for leaving the family, for leaving my family behind, leaving, especially my brother. Um because uh, he was having to deal with, with all the emotional side of it from my mother's side of it as well. Mm-hmm. And these are the days sort of really before FaceTime and Skype and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, when, I, when I look back, I in hindsight, I should have maybe stayed for a couple of more months at home to support the family more. But I felt if I get away and immerse myself in the job immediately, then I'll forget about my dad dying um, and just be able to submerge myself in the job. And that's kind of what I did. So because as soon as I arrived in Singapore, I was literally bang, I was straight into it. Um, And I've never been so busy in all my life in terms of presenting. I was presenting every single day, um, which was fantastic. It was phenomenal. And I was presenting a wide range of stuff, which was great for me as a broadcaster. Um, And I had a really great time in Singapore. I really did. I was very lucky to live there. Met my wife there. So, um, yeah, Singapore was brilliant for me. It really was. And obviously it gave me the, the platform to move to Qatar. Yeah. And when you move to Qatar, you're now behind the scenes um, and you say in your book you pref- um, prefer that. What makes you prefer the production side more? To be honest with you, I was never comfortable presenting. Um, I thought I was going to really enjoy it, but I discovered quite early on when I was working for MUTV that this, I'm not really into this anymore. Um I don't really know why, but the, the, the sort of the, you know, when you get recognised and all that kind of stuff for being off the TV, again, like when I was in the band, I was slightly uncomfortable with it all. Um, and it, it, just, it, just, it just didn't feel like me. So that side of it, um, I just, I was really, oh, I don't like this. I'm just not comfortable with it at all. Um, and I just felt that I could contribute more to the general production of the programme. But I always felt it wasn't my place because um, I, I always felt that was the, the, that was the producer's job was to, to make the programme, to make the decisions about the programme. I, I, I'd like to think that I'm quite a humble guy. You yeah. know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really have any sort of arrogant streak to me at all. I've always been able to keep my feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I never really felt like it was my place to say, well, hang on a second, why are we talking about that? We should be talking about this. Yeah. Um, so when it when it came to producing, when I you know I was almost forced into producing because I I didn't get my presenting contract renewed. Um, again, as hard as that was, in hindsight, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me a brand new career. So then I was able to step into producing and then start understanding what it took from a producer's point of view to make a program. And then because I'd been in that unique situation where I had worked in front of the camera and behind the camera. I felt that I was perfectly placed to be able to produce a really good program. So from there, I think as a producer, when I moved to Qatar and was working with Andy Gray and Richard Keyes and these guys, my, 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 one second, I just need to let the family in. One second, John, so I was saying, um, when I first started working with Richard Keyes and Andy Gray and Angus Scott, and the caliber of these guys, that's when I really first started to appreciate how much I needed to learn as a producer, because these guys were so good. 
and they understood what it took to be a first-class presenter and what it took to make a first-class programme. So for working with them, I think my my skills as a producer just um, improved tenfold. So again, my experience in Qatar was absolutely fantastic for me. Yeah, and you also got to do some Aberdeen stuff out there unofficially because you got um, Kevin Keegan, Alan McCoyst. Um, I, yeah. I love the McCoyst getting him to confess about the dive and the, the Peter Reed and Tony Zerigo one. Um, no, the two of them shouting only one Willie Miller. Um, that, you must have great fun with that. Oh, brilliant. It, do you know, it just popped into my head one day because I knew Kevin Keegan was coming to Qatar and uh, I just thought, what can I do? I want Because the Euros were coming up and I wanted to have some fun with our guests and I think the first thing that I did was a, a photograph I got Michelle Salgado Andy Cole and somebody else I can't remember and I got them to do the, the Bad Boys Inc album post and um, put it online and it got a really good reaction and I thought okay maybe I'll carry this on and I did one with Patrick Cliver where I was pretending to, to, to strangle him because it was his goal against England in Euro 96 that ultimately yes. yeah, meant that Scotland didn't qualify um, for the latter stages. So I had a bit of fun with that, and again, it got a really good reaction. So I thought, well, let's make a video. Let's try and do something with a video. And it just popped into my head. Why do I get Kevin Keegan say something about Aberdeen? And then obviously Kevin Keegan is synonymous with, with, uh, with his post-match interview. And I just thought, let me put that. Let me see if let me see if he'll do it for me. And he did, and I couldn't believe it when he said he would do it. And obviously, it went it went viral. And you know, I had newspapers from Newcastle getting in touch with me and all this kind of stuff. And you know, I've reposted it since, and it's just had a fantastic um, uh, response. So from there, that was just for me the natural progression was just to do more and more. And thankfully. Um, not all, but just about everybody have, have been um, have very kindly offered me their time and their thoughts about Aberdeen for little videos. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's um, tremendous. Um, you should do more than whenever you get a chance. Right, so just a couple of things to wrap this up, Ali. Um, I've appreciated mm. your time. So um, last uh, couple of years, um, you've been, you've started blogs um, on on the club itself and individuals. Um, they've been I've personally found them an absolutely fascinating read. What I've found fascinating is the the range that you've taken, so you've obviously, and when you interview guys like Willie Miller and uh, no, Gordon Strachan, for example, um, it's obviously covering the the high profile stuff. And then, but then when you move on to people like Derek White and Zanko Svetinov, it's the the tough the, the tough years. But the angle that you take is really good. So, um, how much have you been uh, enjoying them? Absolutely love doing them. Um, I have to occasionally pinch myself that. 95% of the guys that I ask to do an interview with have come back and said yes. So it's been absolutely thrilling to be able to go into such depth with these guys about their time at Aberdeen. I've tried to always take a different angle with each individual so that the interviews and the reads don't become stale. So hence why with Willie Miller it was particularly about the type of person that he was to become the type of captain that he was for Aberdeen and advice that he could give to young upcoming players who had aspirations of being a captain. So I'm always looking for the the angle of some of these subjects offering advice. John Ingalls, for example, who may not have been a household Aberdeen name, but he's got such a fascinating story to tell 
post-Aberdeen, now being the European director for Stella Group, which is the biggest sports agency in the world, and looking after the likes of Gareth Bale, and taking the mistakes that he made at Aberdeen, which he's the first person to hold his hand up and say, I made some terrible mistakes, but use those experiences to make sure that the players that he's looking after now don't fall into the trap that he fell into. So it was quite obvious to me to ask him, what advice would you offer? And he was a fascinating talk, a fascinating interview, because he just gave such good information about his time at the club and the mistakes that he made. So I'm always looking for different angles, John, to keep them fresh, to keep them interesting, because at the end of the day, the most important people for me are the people that read the blogs, because I, I need... I need them to stay engaged to be able to, to enjoy the blogs and for the, to, the success of the page to continue. So it's been an absolute thrill and it's an absolute treat to be able to speak to these guys for the length of time that, I've, that I do speak to them and to really get into the nitty gritty side of things. Um, there are times when I've been tempted to ask questions about controversial incidents or maybe there's a story that needs cleared up but I'm very conscious about doing that as well because sometimes I think stuff that happened in the dressing room needs to stay in the dressing yeah, room and it's not for the public domain. And um, I just think some on occasion, privacy needs to be um, very much respected. So apart from that, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic and I, I really, really enjoy doing it. Who have you got lined up for um, the upcoming ones? So I've got, next week I'm interviewing Willie Faulkner, then I'm interviewing Xander Diamond, and I'm also hopeful of getting David Priest. Uh, Carrie Arneson is lined up as well. Um, I'm talking to, to Adam Rooney. Uh, I've already done a blog with Adam Rooney, but that was more specifically about the 2014 League Cup final. So what I want to do with Adam this time is do an all more round, rounded view of his time with Aberdeen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I've got plenty lined up. You know, the good, the great thing about the blogs, John, is that there's an endless list almost of, of players who I can speak to who all have got stories to tell. So I'm in a very fortunate position where I'm not really struggling for subject matters, you know. No, definitely not. Have you, have you considered, um, you know, going down the route <clears throat> players who may not have been popular with Aberdeen for whatever reason. I'll pick an example. I interviewed David Robertson for this podcast, um, obviously knowing that the way he left Aberdeen did not go down well with Aberdeen fans. And he, to be fair, was very open in um, you know why he took the move. He was open in saying that he was naive um, in thinking that he wouldn't get the backlash that he did. I, not that I condone it, absolutely not. Um, so is that something that you consider for a future one to give again another different angle not specifically David Robertson but maybe someone yeah, else so, yeah that, I, I thought long and hard about Sanko because I remember Sanko at Aberdeen and I don't think that he overly covered himself in glory during his time and I wanted to know why so thankfully through contacts that I have I was able to get his email address and ping them off an email and thankfully, through recommendations and word of mouth, he agreed to do the blog. And I said to him, look, I'm going to ask you one or two tough questions about your time at Aberdeen. And he was totally honest with me. And what I found really fascinating and what I found very pleasing is there were one or two comments after I posted the blog 
where fans were very critical of him. In fact, there was one guy who was particularly scathing of him. And as I mentioned before, I don't usually engage people, but I decided to engage this time. So I said to him, just out of interest, have you read the blog? And he came back to me and he said, no. So I simply said to him, look, don't judge a book by its cover. Just read the blog, have a think, and then come back to me and tell me what you think after you've finished reading the blog, because I'd be interested to know your thoughts. And to be fair to the boy, he read the blog and he came back and he said to me in an open public forum that he got it wrong. And now that he was in a, in a more versed position to understand Tanko's situation at the football club, meant that he was able to understand possibly why he didn't exactly set the header on fire while he was with the, with the club. So that I find very flattering as well, that I, I, on occasions I'm able to change fans' opinions of players that used to play for the club. So it's something that I'm also very conscious of because I don't want to pull the wool over people's eyes and just keep the blogs just blasé and this is what this player did at this time and this is what he thought about this incident. I really want to try and, as I said, to really go in depth. And yes, I think you're right. There is definitely room to speak to guys who possibly may not be held in the very highest regard by Aberdeen fans anymore. But let's try and find out why. Yeah, definitely. I think that's always a good insight to go in. Um, one guy that's, um, you know, a, a lot of people find difficult to dislike is uh, Robert Connor. He did a couple of really good promotional videos for you. Um, just sum up, I'm obviously asking this because I recently spoke to, to Roger, um, who claims that he's only ever watched Bad Boys Inc. three times. Um, <laughs> but when asked the question, how many times on average, he says, so to me that tells me he watches it three times a day. <laughs> He's such a great lad. I actually didn't appreciate the wicked sense of humour that he has. And when I spoke to all his old teammates, they all said to me that he was just such great fun in the, the dressing room. He was always full of jokes and full of banter and never one for being shy to to, to have a go at somebody, but in, in the nicest possible way in terms of banter. So, again, it's like I said before, that I'm, that I'm in a very fortunate position where I can call upon these guys and speak to these guys and build a relationship with these guys going forward because everybody that I've spoken to, if I've needed their help since, they've been very kind in offering me their help. Um, you know, just for example, when I when I was interviewing John Ingalls, I just text Sanko very quickly just to say to ask him, just tell me what John Ingalls means to you and how did he help you settle into the football club? And he came back to me immediately and, and, and told me why. So these the guys that I've interviewed going forward have been able to enhance my blogs because I've been able to call upon them to, to, to ask them questions about certain incidents or certain times, So which is obviously hugely beneficial. Yeah, definitely. It's good to have all these these contacts in your wee red book. Um, so, no, that's um, all good. Um, that The blogs have obviously followed on from your hugely successful book, Big, big to differ. Um, I obviously thought it was a fascinating read. Um, so, how did how did the idea of um, of the book come about? That came about when I had just broken my leg, and I was stuck at home. And due to the nature of my injury, I wasn't able to work. So, I, I needed something to do, and. Aberdeen were approaching their, no, I tell a lie, Aberdeen had just celebrated their 100th anniversary. 
and I'd read a couple of books, but which mainly traced the history of the football club. And I hadn't really read anything from a fan's perspective. And I thought, due to the nature that I had been to nearly all of Aberdeen's major successes, I'd grown up in an era when we were dominating Scottish football and winning accolades left, right and centre. I just thought I had a story to tell. And then I thought if I could couple it with my own experiences in life, I sort of humbly thought that people might find it an interesting read. So I actually began putting the whole thing together in 2003. And it's one of those where you, you, you go headstrong into it and you really get into it. And then I got fed up and I put it away for a couple of years. And then I went back to it and wrote more, but was really conscious of my writing and the way that I write. And I just, again, put it away for a couple of more years. And it was only really when I moved to Doha, when I was away from my family, that I needed time to occupy my mind because I was really missing the family. And by that time, the fortunes of the club had completely changed. My life privately had completely changed as well. So I just thought, well, I've got more to write here and I've got more to say. Hence why I, I really got stuck into it when I moved to Doha in 2013 and finished it within 12 months and we published it in 2014. So uh, we published it in the summer of 2014 and I just thought it was it, winning the League Cup. Um, sorry, I, I published it late 2014 after the League Cup final and I thought winning the League Cup was the perfect way to begin the book. So it all fell into place quite nicely, to be honest with you. So it, yeah, it took me a long time, it took over 10 years. Sometimes um, it, that's that's what it takes, but no, it was a, a fascinating read. And just like this podcast, you know, you, you started that off by talking about what happened recently, and then we go into the, the depths of um, your career. So, um, mm. what about the future um, for, for Ali Beg? Um, and obviously, um, the Dawn's podcast, and I know something that you've got up your sleeve as well. Yeah, I, I had every intention of starting a podcast because many people had actually got in touch with me and said, Have you considered doing a podcast? And at first I was a wee bit shy about it, but then the more I thought about it, I started to understand more that podcasts are becoming hugely popular. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was not just do a bog standard podcast. I wanted to combine it. So between my wife and myself, we sort of came up with this idea to actually do a podcast stroke broadcast so that people can listen to it, but they can also visually watch it as well. So we were actually in the process of setting that all up. I had plans to, to travel over to Aberdeen and we had set a production in place to do it. And unfortunately, the, the COVID situation then arose, which meant I had to put everything on hold. So the podcast stroke broadcast is something that is still very much in the pipeline. And it's something that I still very much um, want to do. But it's going to have to wait until the world basically writes itself again. Yeah, that could be 2021 at the earliest, um, but yeah, I'm yeah. sure it'll be worth it. Myself. And will that will that be again mainly mainly players, or do you have a, a options to bring some fans groups in, for example? Yeah, I, I, at the moment I think because the success of the blog has been built on the players, but that doesn't mean to say that I'm not going to look at all angles because I want to improve the blog. I want to to do more with it. Um, I've, I've got lots and lots of things spinning in my head and I just need to put that into practice 
So, yeah, there's lots of plans, John, and, and, and I'm looking at everything, to be honest. I'm not dismissing anything because I think it's important for the success of the blog to continue going forward. But I do keep an open mind to ideas and especially feedback from people who read the blog, you know, like yourself and other fans who are engaged in the blog. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm open to all ideas. Yeah, well, there's, as you say, there's lots of good podcasts out there. So, um, mm. yeah, you'll not be short, short of um, research, that's for sure. So I'll, um, I'll end this with the, the quick fire questions. That they will mainly be Aberdeen-related. So um, in terms of all those cup finals you've been to, um, what's the best Scottish Cup and the best League Cup finals that you've been to? 1982 Scottish Cup final because it was my first. The 1995 Coca-Cola Cup final because it was a turning point in my life and all the emotions that went with it. Excellent. And apart from Gothenburg, what's your um, favourite away trip to see Aberdeen? It was against Rangers at Ibrox. It was in 1985. And if I'm correct in my memory, I think we won 2-0 with Billy Stark and Eric Black scoring the goals. Um, Out with um, Sir Alex Ferguson, who's the best manager to manage Aberdeen in your lifetime? Alex Smith. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I know we get the criticism afterwards for 1991, but he ended up winning two cup finals and um, a lot of second place finishes um, mm-hmm. behind a good Rangers side. Um, what's the best goal that you've seen scored by an Aberdeen player? John Hewitt. Against Real Madrid. Obvious answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That was a silly question to be fair. <laughs> uh, who's the best foreign signing? Hans Hillhouse, followed closely by Theo Schnelders. Yeah, still can't get over that Aberdeen were able to attract a European Cup winner back in 1989 and for 650 grand. That will never happen now, not even Celtic and Rangers. Sir. <laughs> yeah, absolutely incredible when he signed them. That, that was the whole story of him signing for Aberdeen was absolutely fascinating when I spoke to Alex Smith about it for the blog. The fact that him and Jockey Scott went over together and Alex went to one side of the stand and Jockey went to the other and at half time they knew immediately that they had to do the deal at half time okay. and they were seeking out yeah they were seeking out the, the chairman of PSV trying to do the deal at half time which I just thought was fantastic and that again that's the type of thing which has made the blog successful because it, it's not really been in the public domain that story before so yeah just fascinating stuff yeah We've obviously talked a lot about your best moments as an Aberdeen fan, but what's your worst experience as an Aberdeen supporter? Um, oh, it's have to be losing the league on the last day of the season. Um, I, I, I remember that day quite clearly because I was playing in a cup final for my boys' club. Um, I was playing for Stonywood Boys' Club at the time. And we had a game in Stonehaven. And I was, I was just totally distracted because I knew what was going on at Ibrox. And even though our game kicked off at 2 o'clock... And obviously the Aberdeen game kicked off at three o'clock. Um, I was still, I, I needed to know what was going on and I was totally distracted that day. And we actually ended up losing the cup final as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember coming out of the dressing room and putting the radio on in the car on the way home with that. And oh, it was just, it was a double whammy that, not just losing the cup final and playing awful in that game. And then listening to all the events unfold at, at Ibrox, yeah, that was the darkest day as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that, that tops my list in days that I would replay over again, um, oh, yeah. a shadow of a doubt. Um, yeah. from, um, you obviously mentioned about the, the guests that you had on in BN. Um, out of all those BN guests that you've had on, 
Which one would you have most liked to have seen an Aberdeen shirt? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, probably Kevin Keegan. That's a good shirt. And everything, yeah, and everything that Kevin Keegan brought to football. You know, if, if, you know, he was a he was a superstar, wasn't he? Um, you know, when you when you, you when I look back at what these guys achieved in the game, um, and in that era where they achieved it, he was just he was a sensational football player. But he wasn't just that; he he, he had this fantastic personality, and he had this aura about him. He was the captain of England. And, he was almost like another George Best, obviously not on the level that George Best was, but it, it, you could compare it almost. Um, you know, he, he had pop records out and he appeared on Superstars, you know, that fantastic old um, athletics programme that was on BBC many, many years ago. Um, and he was just, a, he was just a, a star on the European stage. And you just have to look at the reaction of the Newcastle fans when he signed and that first game, I think it was against Sheffield Wednesday, um, where I think he scored in his debut, if not two. And just look at the fans' reaction. It, he was almost godlike, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. So could you imagine if he'd come to Aberdeen? Because he, he, he played against Aberdeen for Southampton in pre-season mm-hmm. friendlies. Um, so he's played at Petodrick. Oh, yeah, of all the players, I think Kevin Keegan would have been the one. Yeah, definitely. And um, if um, if Bad Boys Inc. were to re- reunite and you had to pick three former football players to um, be part <laughs> of the band, who would you pick? Oh, dearie me, that's a, that's a superb question. Okay, so we would need three good-looking chaps, wouldn't we? <laughs> so we've got to go with Ian Jess. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Yes. Bit of a heartbreaker. Um... <laughs> I'll go with Big Zeus, John Ingalls, definitely. Because um, he, he broke a few hearts, didn't he? <laughs> and we need one more. We need one more. Maybe maybe James Madison. So, you know, the, the, he, he could be the sort of the boy next door type of guy, you know, the one that the mothers all like, the cute, nice one. Because <laughs> yeah. everyone's got to have a role play, haven't they, in a boy band? So... <laughs> Yeah, Ian Jess, John Ingalls, and James Madison. What a lineup! <laughs> what a band that is. <laughs> Should do that just for a laugh. <laughs> uh, couple, couple more questions. So, first of all, what's um, the best home and away kit that you've owned? Uh, the home kit was the Pinstripe Cup Winners Cup final. Yeah, obvious. And the yeah the away one was the 1980 away white strip that they wore against Liverpool and Austria Memphis. I absolutely love that strip. I've got a retro one of those strips. I absolutely love it. I love that strip. Yeah, the two crackers. And finally, um, yes, was coming. I know this is in your book, but not everyone's saw the book and nobody can buy it now because you don't have any more copies. Um, what's the best Aberdeen 11 of your lifetime? So I picked Theo Schnelders in goal, Stuart McKimmy at right back, I think the central defensive partnership is quite obvious in Alex McLeish and Willie Miller. Yeah. I chose Doug Rugby at left back just because it's Doug Rugby and a cult hero. Um, across the middle, I went with Gordon Strachan, Scott Severin, Neil Simpson and Peter Weir. And then I played Ian Jess in the hole just behind Frank McDougall. Because yeah. I was going to ask you... Um, a non-Gothenburg theme best 11. Um, so when I read your team, I thought, 
He's actually got a few. Um, the one that stuck out for me was Scott Seven. No, mm. that I didn't rate Scott Seven. I actually would have Scott Seven in my best eleven. But given that you had like Neil Cooper and Jim Bet and several others to pick from, why did you end up picking Seve? So I went with Scott Severin because he signed the season after I started writing my book. And in all the seasons that he played, Aberdeen finished in the top six. Jimmy Caldwell made him captain. He played for Scotland. He didn't just play in midfield, but he was occasionally deployed as a sweeper. And I just thought he was the type of captain who was inspirational to his teammates. And when Jimmy joined the club, obviously our fortune started to turn for the better and we became a better unit. I also think we became a better club as well. And the fact that we were able to then qualify for Europe and do as well as we did in Europe under his stewardship on the pitch at that time was the reason why I think I decided to go for Scott because he wasn't surrounded by the type of players like a Gordon Strachan or a Neil Cooper or a Peter Weir or a Neil Simpson. And I mean that with the greatest respect to the players that he played with. He was playing with players who were nowhere near the calibre of a Gordon Strachan, Neil Simpson, Neil Cooper or Peter Weir. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory form. What I'm saying is, is that because of the calibre of player he played with, I think he was an inspirational captain. Now, I also know for a fact, because I asked some of his teammates while I was making my choice, that he was also a hugely influential off the park as well. So he wasn't just a great captain on the pitch. He was a fantastic club captain off the pitch. So there were a number of reasons why I actually decided to go for Scott Seven. But he was also very much in my mind at the time that I was writing my book. So um, that's really the reason why I chose him. That's, that's a, a fair explanation. It's just obviously a lot of Aberdeen fans of you, you'll probably say, why him? But that's um, but you've explained it very well. Um, I mean, for me, Scott Seven was an excellent player. I think too often he was asked to go in defence when I think he should have stuck in midfield far more often. But that's just a personal opinion. Listen, Alan, thanks very much for your time again. No, been, for me, it's been two hours of fun. Um, and, you know, hope everything settles down okay and that um, the future's rosy for you. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for, for having me on. Yeah, not a problem. Cheers, Ali. Thank you.